This is episode 215 of Alohomora for March 19th, 2017. Welcome, listeners, back to another episode of Alohomora, where we open the Dumbledore on discussions about the Harry Potter series. I'm Michael Harley. I'm Kat Miller. And I'm Allison Sigurd. And our guest this week is Anna. Welcome, Anna. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into Harry Potter, your house, all that cool stuff. Yeah, okay. Uh, so I'm very happy to be here, first of all. Uh, also a bit scared because I know this is such a controversial topic. Um, <laughs> don't be scared. <laughs> we we picked you specifically for this, so don't, you're, you're doing just fine already, Anna. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so anyway, I live in Sweden and uh, it's almost like 2 a.m. over here, so um, I think my brain is with me, so that's good. Oh, uh, wow. We'll see how it goes. Uh, but thank you for starting a bit earlier, by the way. Uh, I appreciate that. Um, so basically I spent my whole evening watching Deadly Hallows part one and two, uh, because what better way to put me in the mood for this uh, magical night. Um, so yeah, I grew up with the books. Uh, I consider myself very lucky to have been able to do that. I read the first book when I was 11 ish, uh, but I didn't become part of the community until I was in my teens. Uh, I love book five. It's my favorite book. And after reading it, I went online and Googled Harry Potter and was introduced to a world of fix forums, podcasts, fan sites, um, and all of that. Uh, so I started listening to MuggleCast and then also Alohomora, of course, when you guys came along. Um, sorting. I got sorted in Slytherin on Pottermore and on oh. basically <laughs> every other sorting test I ever took. Yeah, so I really identify with that house. And I think you've had a lot of guests who have been Slytherins, right? Mm-hmm. These days we seem to get more Slytherins than we do Gryffindors. <laughs> well, so. you know, we're just so ambitious that we have to be on the show. So That's wonderful. That's what we love about <laughs> Slytherins. That's so, yeah. so I always love to ask, when, especially when we have international guests on the show, Anna, did you read Harry Potter in English or did you, in your case, did you read it in uh, Swedish? No, I actually read it in English and that's very important to me to read it in the original language because I don't want any translations or, you know, any changes from the holy... <laughs> Mm. Uh, JKR mm-hmm. writing style. So, yeah. That tends to be the thing we hear most, actually, when we have mm-hmm. uh, guests who speak other languages, because uh, a lot of people say that they, even that they maybe sometimes tried to read it in their native language and noticed immediately just because of something about the writing that they felt something was off or different about the translation and they wanted to try and read it in English. We've even had listeners who didn't speak English who have said that uh, Harry Potter actually kind of helped them to learn how to speak English, which I thought was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I mean, some... I, th- I think I did read the first two or three books maybe uh, in uh, Swedish because I was just a kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then as I grew up, I started wanting to read them in English. Actually, That's, fan- that's fantastic. That's so cool. I still need to make good on my a reverse version of that because I've, I've picked up a version in, uh, of, of Sorcerer's Stone in Spanish. Yeah. And I feel like, I feel like I know the book <laughs> so well now I could read it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's very good for learning languages actually. Just motivating yourself by reading Harry Potter in a different language. Yeah. I think that's great. 
Yeah, that's really cool. Mm. I went trolling eBay the other day to find the Japanese covers because I still really want those. I'm not a book collector by any means. I know it's blasphemy, <laughs> but I want huh. those Japanese covers so badly. I'd never be able to learn the language, probably, <laughs> but I still just want those covers on my shelf so bad. I've never seen them. What's on them? Oh, they're There's, beautiful. They're Google unusual. Oh, yeah. Okay. There's something Definitely. else. They're there. I actually, Kat, I got to see them for the first time because <gasps> when I started at the library, we have them on the shelves. <gasps> yeah. Steal them. <laughs> it's a great way to lose my job. <laughs> when I come see you again, we're going to go there and I want to look at them and take pictures with them and be a nerd. Yes, okay? I'll make sure uh, and I'll make sure to show I'll take pictures for you so you can at least get a closer glimpse of them but yeah they're they're pretty cool and they are split into two just like we found out the later yes. ones um yeah so, facetime yeah. me next time you're at the library i want to see them <laughs> <laughs> they have little drawings in them too they actually oh. have uh, their own versions of chapter drawings and things in them oh um, so they sound amazing oh my gosh they're very unique but but anna we are Glad that you're here, and we know you're nervous about this topic, but we're glad yes. <laughs> that you joined us, because listeners, this week, <laughs> we are hashtag, once again, breaking the curse on Cursed Child. <laughs> we are trying to figure out, is Cursed Child canon? And we're going to present our uh, thoughts and arguments on that. Mm-hmm. But before we get into that, because uh, we're going to get into it, <laughs> we just want to let you all know that this episode is sponsored by Paul Gomila, who is one of our fabulous Patreon sponsors for over a year. A full year! Yay! That's and our guest from last week. Yeah, he was our guest from last episode. Yeah. That Paul, Slivenpuff door. Hello, Paul. Yay! Well, Thank you, Paul. look, he's double special. Because he's on the last one and this one. If we had picked him for last week, that would have been very funny. That would have been funny. Should have done that. Thank- Didn't think about it. But thank you, Paul. Yay. We're so glad you were on the show and that you're sponsoring Alohomora. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. thank you to all of our sponsors. You're all amazing. And if you would like to become a sponsor and you haven't yet, you can do that for as little as a dollar a month. And we will continue to release exclusive tidbits for our sponsors. Things are things are happening. We're getting things going. So, Alice and I are going to be together in about three weeks. So that's true. Patreon people expect some weird stuff. Just saying. (laughs) (laughs) Probably. (laughs) Yeah. I ran into a little snag with video gaming, but I'm working on a workaround. Apparently, Nvidia that does not want to record Harry Potter. Specifically, for reasons I have not figured out yet. Oh, but, Warner Brothers. Yes, we have. I have some other solutions. It was great though because I recorded a playthrough for like an hour and a half before I realized it didn't record. <laughs> so, oh no! <laughs> so I tried, listeners. I'm really trying. I'm going to get you this playthrough, and at least I've done it once now, and it probably will be more entertaining this time because now I know what I'm doing. So hey. <laughs> oh my gosh, that sucks. <laughs> hey, it's it's fine. It doesn't suck too bad. At least I was playing Harry Potter. That's true. There are worse yeah. things, I suppose. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so as usual, I guess we decided that you know, we've been doing this kind of when the episode suits it, and this time we thought it was definitely appropriate that we start off 
with our overall impressions. You know, if you've listened to the Cursed Child episodes, the four we had, plus the bonus one on the production, which I just realized I haven't listened to since I saw the show. So maybe I'll go back and listen to that. Not maybe, definitely. But (laughs) so if you've listened to the five episodes of Cursed Child, you probably remember where we stand. However, we haven't really talked about this canon issue before. You know, Joe has come out and said that it's canon, but just because Joe said it doesn't mean you have to agree with it. So this time we are going to be very respectful (laughs) and we are going to debate (laughs) this issue and you will be very happy to know we have a very diverse panel of hosts today. So as far as I'm concerned, Cursed Child is 100% not even remotely on any planet in this galaxy, solar system, universe, canon. (laughs) In any way, shape, or form. So that's me. I am most definitely the uh, the no side of this debate. <laughs> if it, so, if, if if aliens came to visit Earth, and and you showed them the Harry Potter books, you'd hold you'd have Cursed Child like separated from them and be like, <laughs> I you would. can read it, but don't consider it mm-hmm. part of the story. Right. You can read it and enjoy it because I did enjoy it. If you all remember, I enjoyed. Cursed Child a lot. Um, I thought it was very funny and very witty. The production is incredible. I absolutely love it. Jamie Parker is the Harry Potter of my dreams. Mm, nice. Doesn't mean it's canon. So, uh, yeah. Michael, you're up. <laughs> <laughs> well, for my part, as you listeners may remember, and you probably are still hearing about it if you follow me on Twitter, because uh, every once in a while, even if I don't bring it up, one of my Twitter followers <laughs> does, and suddenly we're talking about <laughs> Cursed Child, um, almost like it's given all of us PTSD in some way, shape, or form. Um, I am not a fan of Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. I, uh, I definitely, I, and I think I will say to clarify, um, that there, my issue, uh, does probably stem from the fact that I was one of the most staunch defenders of it before it was released. Um, and I was like, let's give it a chance. It could be really good. This could be amazing. I'm all for it. And then it smacked me in the face. Um, and, uh, I really, having read it fully twice now, uh, I do not particularly uh, care to take it as canon. Uh, but I am, uh, open to using it for its little bits and pieces that it fills holds in with more, like, technical Harry Potter-related stuff. Like, oh, hey, these spells are canon now. Oh, hey, this <laughs> location is canon now. Or there's a clarification about something that, sure, I guess I can take that as canon. Um, you're going to find that my canon is a little more flexible, um, but about as flexible as my wand. It's got minimal <laughs> flexibility. Um, but overall, <laughs> the story itself, I... I can't. I'm sorry. I can't. <laughs> that's that's where I stand. Okay. Al, you, Allison. Um, well, anyone who has listened to those five episodes know that I will go down with this play. <laughs> Pretty much. Um, having I mean, I fell in love with it when I saw it. I loved it again reading it. Um, I am all about it. I think especially thematically it very much fits with the other books. Um, so I take it as pretty much canon, except for one thing. <laughs> <laughs> one thing that I'm just like, mm, no. And a couple things that I think just need a little bit more explanation, and that explanation just got cut. It's a casualty of the medium. 
of it being a play. I still wonder how different your opinion would be if you hadn't seen it before you read it. Yeah, I do think about that sometimes, but... You know, I still, I always, I, I you know, that's always going to be a what if for us. Because yeah. obviously the beautiful stage production influences that opinion of the script. Yes, so. yes. I thought you were going to say, obviously the beautiful actors on stage. <laughs> oh, well, not going <laughs> to deny do. that either. I just found a also. picture of Jamie Parker last night from uh, Cat in a Hot Tin Roof, and I was like, oh my gosh. Sorry. Anyway. I mean, the uh, if you saw the YouTube videos where he sings. Oh, yeah. Like, uh-huh. Dang. Yeah, that's, he's beautiful. That's dreamy. Yeah, and, <laughs> and to be fair, I do recall from our previous conversations about Cursed Child that Allison did mention that as she was reading the script, she was slightly confused by how badly the script conveyed yes. things that she felt the actual show succeeded on. Yeah, um, the, whoever wrote those stage directions for the script that got released did not do a great job, like, at all. So. Thank goodness it's just the rehearsal script. So yeah. So, okay, so, so far we have the spectrum of not at all canon, a little bit canon, mostly canon, and now, Anna, your thoughts? Yes, I am team canon. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So please nobody hate me for this. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Actually, I haven't seen it yet. I'm going to see it next year because I finally, finally, finally got a ticket. Yay! Uh, Cool. Yay, so I'm very excited about that after staying up all night and, you know. Um, Anyway, (laughs) but yeah, I did read the script and I would say that it does, I think, satisfy my uh, definition of canon. So, yeah. Definitely. Oh, you're so lucky that you get to go see it. I'm already resigned to the fact that I am not seeing the London production. I hopefully someday. Why? Oh, I but just you'll... I don't have the money to go to London right now, nor the time. Oh, well, I think we'll come to Broadway or something. I yes, I, I, I yes, I, I was actually reading about the New York uh, production that's coming in 2018, and I definitely would like to see if I can manage that at some point. But I guess part of it too was, you know, there was just such rave reviews about the London cast, mm. and I'm yeah. assuming uh, very few, if any, of them will transfer over to the U.S. version. So, um, and also, uh, you know. Transferring to a different theater will necessitate changes of any kind and, um, potentially, I don't, I don't know if, um, if the play, the plan was to have John Tiffany actually come on and direct the U.S. version either. Um, so there could potentially be some alterations from the, the U.K. Right. version. I don't um, think we but, know that yet. And actually a lot, <clears throat> um, actually contracts for the original cast, um, are up in May. So it, mm, it might be mm-hmm. that even as soon as a couple of months, you're seeing new people in the roles of these characters. Yeah, so. yeah I mean, I'll, I'll be sorry for that, but <laughs> yes, it's unavoidable, With, I think. Yeah. Yes, for sure. Yeah. And it, it begs a question, too, and I feel like this is a perfect time to talk about it since we're talking about the show, is what is canon as far as the production goes? Because every iteration of the show can't be canon. So does the actual production of the show fit into the universe at all, or is it merely the story and the characters? Is Jamie Parker actually Cursed Child's Harry Potter? And how's that going to work moving forward? It's it's a messy, messy world, Cursed Child. <laughs> yeah, it is. I think I would say that only the text, I mean, the script itself will be canon because I think actors usually improvise stuff when they're on the stage. 
so I wouldn't consider those things canon if it's just an actor coming up with an idea that they think is cool, so they will just run with it or something like that. Mm, um, I think that they would be hard pressed to improvise Harry Potter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I I actually gonna I'm gonna disagree because I think they're going to keep it as similar as is physically possible because mm. I think because John Tiffany and Jack Thorne, I think they're going to stay very much involved. And I think every iteration is going to be as similar as you possibly can have it with different people. I think, I think the things that this first cast was lucky enough to do was that they got to kind of pick some of these things that I think are then everybody who comes after them is going to have to adopt some of those things. Um, like as part, like mannerisms, um, some of the ways they interpret some of the lines. Um, I'm especially thinking about Jamie Parker and I'm thinking about Anthony Boyle. Um, I'm always thinking about Jamie Parker. Sorry. I'll stop. <laughs> 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 Sorry. And that's my fault. I'm the one who threw out the say, We all know who okay. I'm always thinking about, so it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, I think especially these ones that have really defined these characters a little bit more solidified the definition of these characters are going, it's going to be the way that everybody else is going to have to do it. Um, so I don't think you're going to see a lot of change. Um, that being said, I hope they print a better version of the script <laughs> that includes some of those things. Yeah, I mean, I was going to ask, ask about that, actually. Sorry. Uh, because when is the final script coming out, right? Because we only have the <sighs> rehearsal edition. Right. So it's like, they've is there been, any, like... They've been very ambiguous about the date. Oh, yeah. So It wouldn't surprise me if it's sometime around when Broadway's getting ready to open. Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> I... I know they were originally looking at sometime this year, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm also probably on the same page with you, as you, Allison. That it, there, there's too good of a marketing opportunity to to pull it out when it when the New York production arrives. Um, it would be kind of foolish to just do it in between because um, you'll they, you can just reignite the hype and the excitement because. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I'm sure they are going to put it out with the promise that there's more details. There's things that haven't been explored in the rehearsal script because I, what, what I think, uh, is probably right about what you're saying, Allison, because I remember both you and, uh, Steve Vanderark putting that forth on one of the cursed child episodes is that, um, obviously you can, I mean, you can look on the back of your copy of, uh, Harry Potter and the cursed child and you'll see that little stamp of JK Rowling's wizarding world. Um, this is a very well controlled, uh, uh, property at this point. And I think that to some degree, yeah, some of the choices that the actors made are probably going to make their ways into the scripts. Um, I don't know how extreme it's going to be able to be because as Kat mentioned with the actors, with the actors contracts wearing out, it's not like the actors are going to be coaching the next group of actors. There's maybe some level of that when you have understudies. Um, mm. And they'll definitely probably interact with them briefly. But I, 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 it's, I think, like I said before, there's an inevitable amount of some change. The theater that they're going to be in um, in New York is not going to be uh, exactly the same theater that they're in in the UK. And that's going to have to necessitate certain aesthetic changes. Um 
I mean, and if there's, if there's the idea too that Rowling, I know, was hoping early on that this goes on tour, uh, that's definitely going to have to. Which I don't know how that's going to work. But if that happens, that's going to have to necessitate changes because even shows that go on tour from Broadway, uh, they'll change dramatically um, because they have to shrink down. Uh, Mm -hmm. Like I I saw a, a version of Mary Poppins in Albuquerque. Um, and it was really cool because the way that they did it was the Banks's house was a dollhouse. It was kind of like done where like the house like folded out, um, mm-hmm. into the set. But in the Broadway version, they didn't do that because they didn't have to compact the set because it was there all the time. But the so. nice thing about the sets and stuff they've done for Cursed Child is they're pretty minimalist. Like, th- I mean, they just have like the rolling staircases. They have the big clock one. Um, and so the giant I feel turntable like, on stage, the underwater well, okay. tank, the giant thing that shows <laughs> okay. from the ceiling. Sorry, Al. Okay. There's a lot of stuff. Okay. There's a lot There's, of stuff. But, but I feel like those things are things that you could easily adapt to a different stage. Like, it's not going to be... It's not adapt, like, Adapt, meaning say, change. Well, okay, but <laughs> not change too much. Like, it's not going to be... <laughs> it's not like the Wicked stage, you know, where it's, like, insane. It's not the Matilda... I mean, I guess the Matilda stage is... Could be fairly easy to shuffle around, but I think um, my biggest concern with Cursed Child coming to America is: Are they going to pull a philosopher's slash sorcerer's stone? Are they they going to change and Americanize parts of the script for us? Quote stupid Americans. I don't think they can at this point. I don't think they can do that again. Um, They stopped doing that in the books because everybody started knowing: Oh, this is British. And so they started expecting things to be British. And I think if they tried to do that again, people would lose their minds. (laughs) That is also something that's really actually oddly difficult to do with plays because it's there, there's kind of a definitiveness to a, to a, a book of a play or a script of a play versus there tends to actually be more open-endedness with a with an interpretation as far as stage directions and stage design as opposed to the script itself. Um, scripts, for whatever reason, people are pretty rigid about, um, and you can't you usually can't add lines, subtract lines, or alter lines. Um, there may be some little things here and there that they might want to Americanize for clarification. Um, but I don't know if that'll happen at a, I don't know if that'll happen on a grandiose amount. Um, right. But, but yeah, no, I, I, for, for me, just with my personal experience of an understanding of theater, that's why it's hard for me to consider Cursed Child canon as far as its theatrical production. Um, it's, it, whatever attempts they try to maintain it, it's, there are going to have to be changes. Um, to some degree here and there. It's inevitable. I think that there can be an alpha production. And obviously what's happening right now is the alpha production. And that's the one that people will talk about and look back to. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it'll never be the same. And therefore, yeah, I agree. It can't, you know, not that you can ever really consider like a production canon part of the universe. But for those reasons, the fact that it, it the only constant in a production is change. And it just can't ever stay the same. Yeah, but I also think that it's very unlikely that they will actually change the story like from one production to another. So I think that if we think about the script as 
canon, then that's sort of fixed in a way, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, that would, that would make sense then in that respect to look at the script as more of a, a canon. But of course, in this case too, we have the instance of we, we have another script coming and eventually we, people might be kind of disregarding the rehearsal script as, as right. canon. Which is another issue all in itself, right? <laughs> it's another issue all in itself. And it's just, and you know, this is a, this is a reminder that canon debates, Guys have been around for a really ridiculously long time. Every fandom has this problem. Not generally as complex (laughs) as this problem, but every fandom has some level of the canon debate and discussion, what is and what isn't. Star Wars, really good example. Star Trek, really good example. Harry Potter, fantastic example. Lord of the Rings, for goodness sake. Mm -hmm. Marvel. (laughs) <laughs> Marvel, oh DC, there are so it's not many. Even, it's not even fandoms though either. It's like literature. People still argue about the, the like Western literature canon and what should be included and what mm-hmm. shouldn't be included. I mean, it's a it's a huge deal. <laughs> like, right. well, didn't didn't uh, we discuss on a previous episode? And Rosie and Allison, I think, had more kind of to say about this. But this is the the, the idea kind of goes back more to biblical canon um it's kind mm-hmm. of its roots is like what about the bible is is canon and what's not canon which uh thank goodness we're not debating that here because who knows <laughs> there were that we there would never be enough episodes to finish no. that debate. <laughs> never and and the thing too that we want to remind everybody out there again is that these are our opinions and we approach everybody approaches canon in a very different way uh, you bring your experiences from life, your bias, um, your your political affiliation, your religion, your your sex, your, your everything, your your status in the world, your your class, everything. It comes into play when you're talking about canon and how you think about canon. So just keep that in mind, and you know, when you're listening to this and you're like, "Oh my god, I absolutely hate what that person just said," just remember, you know. There are opinions, and we're not here to change your mind or preach to you about what we think is right or wrong. Because this, this is, you know, debates are not meant to be won; they are simply discussions. So, just keep that in mind. Wanted to throw that out. Because when it when it really comes down to it, everybody gets to decide what they take and what they don't take. So. That's this isn't like the Snape debate or anything, guys, where obviously... Just kidding. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, and with that said, I believe it was uh, Anna who uh, put in a note about uh, bias and subjectivity when it comes to canon. Anna, what, did you want to speak to that a little bit? Yeah. Um, so basically what I mean by that is that I think from what I've noticed online anyway, there seem to be two different sides. And the people who like Cursed Child are usually also the people who think it should be canon. And the people who don't like it or don't agree with the story are the people who don't think it should be canon. Mm. Uh, and I haven't seen that many people like somewhere in the middle, like, okay, I hate Cursed Child, but I think it's canon. Or, you know, I like it, but I don't think it's canon. Um, so that's why I'm wondering, like, how can we separate, uh, put aside our personal feelings and just think about canon as something that's maybe outside of what our own subjectivity, like maybe it's something more objective, you know, I mean, I can still hate it and think it's canon or I can, you know, sort of things like that. 
That's so funny. And um, I'm actually one of those in-between people because, like I said, I enjoyed Cursed Child but is like 1,000% not canon for me. And I'm actually going to put out a quick poll on Twitter because I'm really interested to know where the majority of people lie. Because mm. I have seen a lot of different opinions, people in the middle. Um, so I'm going to put up that poll on Twitter right now while you discuss, Michael. The interesting thing that I have that I think we've seen with that is that the even the individuals who embrace it as canon um, have... I, I, I know that was something that Steve uh, Vanderark brought up was um, as somebody who... <laughs> Uh, kind of has to figure out what's canon and what's not, have addressed that it's difficult because there are certain things in Cursed Child that kind of headbutt with canon, um, at least with previously established canon. So that also uh, brings that into the debate as well, so that even the people who are maybe uh, in, at least in Steve's position, um, having to put that bias aside are still having issues with how to sift through all of the information of Cursed Child um, to figure it out and fit it in with the canon. And unfortunately, I think the thing that's being seen a lot is that people are having to kind of... We've had a few discussions, I'm sure we will today, that some of the issues that come up, the fandom is trying to come up with their own explanations about what, how to fit it in. Um, but then again, that brings back that subjectivity in because people are sometimes filling in the gaps with what they want. Um, so that's, that's also mm. presenting complications. And that's, that's what I was going to say was, I was going to say, um, I think that's a big problem with people either accepting or not accepting Cursed Child's canon. Um, there were 10 years between Deathly Hallows and this, and I think a lot of people had kind of solidified their head canons or like, a lot of things become popularly accepted ideas. Definitely. And then all of a sudden, Cursed Child came and was like, mm, not really. And so people were mad about it. Um, yeah, I think that it's so hard because, I mean, people are so emotionally invested. And like you said, it's been 10 years or something. Um, so we're not really that flexible anymore. We cannot accept like different characterizations maybe or, you know, they're just like easily let down, I think. Uh, and that's why I think Fantastic Beasts did, was much much more successful because people didn't have the same like attachment to the characters. We didn't really know them before seeing Fantastic Beasts. So it's a completely different thing. And the reactions have been so positive to that movie. And also, as far as Fantastic Beasts goes, there's no debate that it's canon because J.K. Rowling wrote it and she produced it and she was part of it from start to finish. And for me, at least... That is where the issue lies with Cursed Child. Um, mm, see, but I... We'll get there. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, in fact, that's a pretty good place to actually, I'd say, start, Kat. And it looks like you had kind of sussed out a lot of the uh, uh, quotes from Rowling on that matter. Yeah, some of them. So I wanted to bring up some quotes. So as I've said... Cursed Child for me is definitely not canon, and there has been... The biggest issue for me is the fact that J.K. Rowling didn't write it. It wasn't her pen on a piece of paper writing the words, which to me is 95% of what defines canon for me. And <clears throat> when I think about the other fandoms and places and people who have had other authors write things that end up being canon, it is most often 
because somebody takes over due to death or quote unquote like disinterest or selling the rights um, of that property and no longer being involved in any way, shape, and form, i.e. George Lucas and Star Wars, which is a perfect example because he completely stepped away from that and therefore has given up his right 1,000%. He has nothing to do with it anymore as far as I'm aware. Somebody out there can correct me if I'm wrong. No, that's pretty much correct. Right, exactly. So, therefore, he he no longer is the sole author of Star Wars because he walked away from it. He gave up that right, and therefore, the things that are written after that, obviously, it's still debatable what is canon. Um, debate is always going to be there. But there's more of a window for other people to write things that are generally accepted as canon, i.e. Episode seven. Rogue One, the Han Solo stuff, all of that. Granted. I I am going to say, though, because taking that example, it's it's very different. Because um, I was just talking to someone about this the other day. Um, when you look at George Lucas's storylines, he was fine when someone else wrote the dialogue. When you look at the dialogue in episodes like 2 and 3 and 1... It's laughably bad in a lot of places because he's not good at writing dialogue. So in the Star Wars case, it was actually kind of a boon to have someone else actually write the dialogue. And I think you could make that argument for Cursed Child that J.K. Rowling had never written a theater script before. I personally think she was a lot more involved than a lot of other people think because I see her fingerprints all over it. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, I see her, I see her themes. I see things that I'm like, that's a Joe line right there. Um, I see a lot of that, but maybe she didn't write every single individual word, but I think she was much more involved in, okay, here's what's happening. Here's what characters are feeling. Here's how we need to get this across. Um, okay. So then let me, let me, let me read you some quotes because I think it's funny that you were talking about laughable lines and stuff. Like if George Lucas was a crappy writer, I could talk about that for 12 hours, but I'm just going to read you some (laughs) quotes. I'll let it sit. I'll let somebody else, I'll let a listener, uh, you know, talk about that. But so I've got some quotes. The first one here is from a BBC interview and we will include all of the links in the description of the episode. So you guys can go and watch the interview for yourself. So the BBC reporter, his name is Will, and he says, is there a sense, and this is talking to Joe, is there a sense in your own mind that philosophically, more than literally, that you don't own Potter anymore, that it is owned by the fan base? And now, so I I transcribe these quotes, guys, they're not exact, they are very close. Joe, I wouldn't go that far, Will, because that would be, and I'm deadly serious, that would be to disavow what that world was to me. 17 years that world was mine, and for seven of those years it was entirely mine. Not a living soul knew anything about it. And I can't just uproot that from all of my personal experiences that inform those stories and say I'm throwing that away now, and that is how it would feel. And then Jack, Jack Thorne says, And as a fan, you want it to be her world, not our world. It, it is her world that we have been allowed to play in. So I wanted to bring this one up because... As I said before, I feel like when an author walks away from their product, when they walk away from it, when they remove themselves from it, it almost takes away their ownership of that thing. And this Mm -hmm. quote from me proves that J.K. Rowling will never let it go, ergo, anything else written by anybody else 
can't be canon because J.K. Rowling is still involved in the world and is a part of that world. So nobody else can write that stuff. Yeah, but I think that actually proves that it is canon because she has, you know, she's involved and she's been involved in Curse Child and she's yep. calling it, she's calling it, her. Say, she's calling it the eighth story. The quote doesn't say she was involved with Curse Child. It's just but that she was. But we know she was. I mean, there's no reason to believe that she was yeah. lying when she said that she was. Uh, so that's what I'm basing that on. And having Jack Thorne say, you want it to be her world, not our world, tells you that they knew that they needed to do what she's doing. I really like this quote because I think it says, it, it goes against a lot of those people who I think don't like Cursed Child and say it's not canon because it goes against popular fan theories. Um, Joe's not going to bow to fans necessarily. She's not going to give them something just because they want it. Because, and that's great, I think, because I'm going to give an example of one of my favorite TV shows, Supernatural. Right now, they're kind of going downhill because they keep folding to what fans want more than anything. And it's making their stories suffer. Um, whereas things like Cursed Child, where uh, JKR says, we will tell the story that I am seeing. This is my world. I will tell that story and I will share it with you. Makes that even more canon. You know, it's going to make a better story, even if it's not what the fans necessarily want. Fans can be very entitled. Mm, yes, they can. <laughs> it's a real problem I see lately. Um, I think I think she's right. I think she's saying, no, this is, this is my world. I am always going to be involved in it. And even if she gets someone else's heads in there, I think that also makes it better to get other ideas, other people's experiences, um, and kind of add a little bit of that. Because coming from a writing standpoint, you tend to start writing similar patterns, similar things. There's always going to be a couple subjects, ideas, that themes that always, always, always nettle you just because of the kind of person you are and your personal experiences and what you've gone through in your life. Um, so to have someone else's viewpoint while still keeping it in your world, I think makes it even a better story and helps helps it from getting too repetitive. It didn't become a Harry Potter book rehashed. It became its own story. And I mean, we've talked about this before, how I don't think it's Harry's eighth story. I think this is Albus's story. And this is a new bubble kind of on this like line of this world yeah we won't even get into the fact that they're calling it the eighth story because that's a whole episode all in itself um yeah <laughs> i think it's well, funny that that sorry michael hold on i think it's funny that and this is going to come out like i'm totally saying that you're wrong but i can't think of any other way to word it i think it's funny that you think that adding another opinion to it stops like keeps her from being repetitive in my opinion if you can't come up with a story that's not repetitive, you shouldn't write it. Yeah, see, that's so. First of all, I, I want to add it's it's hard to use Star Wars as a comparative because Star Wars wasn't always completely Lucas's from af, from the get go. Mm -hmm. uh, the first one, um, the first one is probably the closest to being properly his, the original um, Star Wars: A New Hope, and after that. While he wrote the stories, uh, they were had a new treatment after he wrote the story out, and he didn't direct a lot of the Star Wars films. And once the Star Wars films really got, once Star Wars really began to explode, Lucas 
did outsource elements of Star Wars that became canon to other people. Uh, the books, the TV shows, uh, you know, all of the extra stuff that got added to that. And then when Disney bought it, it all got erased except a very small amount of stuff. Um, yeah. So Star Wars has gone through an extremely catastrophic canon issue. <laughs> um, is as far as what is being argued here, I'd put forth, and this is, and again, this is why we say this is all a matter of personal opinion. One of the reasons I didn't like Cursed Child is because it did feel like a rehash to me in a lot of ways because it's super dependent on Goblet of Fire um for its story and while i'm not i'm not saying that it's a repeat of goblet of fire and its themes and ideas it just lifts things from goblet of fire visuals um and uh elements from goblet of fire as well as elements from other parts of the books um in a way to me that doesn't uh feel fresh i think the other issue again is that the story itself the conflict at the heart of it the kind of father son relationship um, and again, this is totally a personal thing for me to say, but it feels super Tim Burton-y. Uh, <laughs> Tim Burton loves his daddy issues in his movies. And, uh, <laughs> this is like the ultimate stereotypical daddy issue plot. And the, that gets into, you know, we'll, and we'll get into this as we start exploring specifics about it. But, um, I think that all has to do a lot with how the, um, Actually, the 19 years later opening scene is constructed in the play versus the book. Hmm. Yeah, I think I agree with you, Michael, that it's not really that original. Uh, but I think the point was that it should be nostalgic in some way. Like you should make, uh, I don't know, the viewers and the readers revisit some of their favorite scenes and characters and so on. So I think that that's sort of the point, even though I understand why that's disappointing mm -hmm. to some people. So yeah. I think that's why they didn't create something completely new, like from scratch. Uh, and then, of course, maybe I have my own opinions about whether Goblet of Fire was the book that I would have wanted to revisit. But, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. that's a different right, yeah. story. I mean, book five all the way. <laughs> yes, book five. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> but I think revisiting Goblet of Fire is one of the only things that makes sense. Because in that Triwizard Tournament... We only ever got Harry's point of view. Harry only ever got his point of view. So to all to so to all of a sudden remember that this world is bigger. There was so much more going on um, because we start seeing these tasks from a totally different point of view. We start seeing it from the audience, from someone who's not so like emotionally. Well, I guess they're kind of emotionally involved, but in a different way. <laughs> they're not necessarily emotionally involved in the tournament events itself. They're more emotionally involved in what the tournament did, what came after because of the tournament. If that makes sense. Yeah, but I think... So that... it is new. Mm. Mm. I feel like that, that just summarized Order of the Phoenix, um, in that it's kind of the fallout of what happened. Um because it affects Harry directly. Well, Order's more like the emotional fall. I feel like Cursed Child is more of like the history fallout. <laughs> What's the I word I'm looking for? Well, uh, the the political and the perhaps the social fallout. Yeah. Like the, the larger implications. But I think that's Order of the Phoenix. Order of the Phoenix deals with that. Um, that's mm. why it comes back to Harry's because people don't believe him on the social and political level. Um, but... Uh, I think before we go that far, maybe Kat, you want to read some more of these quotes that you 
kind of found as far as Rowling's thoughts? Yeah, sure. So I, I, I pulled out a few more, and, and this is – so there's always been this debate is how involved was J.K. Rowling in the creation of Cursed Child? And we know for a fact she didn't write it. Yes, she is credited as a writer, but she didn't write it. And so I found a couple of quotes. Again, these are um, – I don't like to pull quotes that are just 100% what I believe because I think what's the point in that? There's no reason to do that. Um, I like quotes that are kind of ambiguous. That way we can discuss them. So this first one here came from Harry Potter and the Cursed Child Red Carpet Gala. And Joe was speaking directly to – somebody on the Cursed Child team. So this can be found on the Cursed Child YouTube channel. You don't get to hear the interviewer's question. However, Joe says, quote, Since the first time Sonia came into my office and said, I'd like to make a play, and I liked Sonia loads, so I thought this could be interesting. And we found Jack and John, and the rest is history. So, besides the fact that Joe didn't write it, this wasn't her idea. Um, even if she contributed to it, the fact that someone approached her about it and initiated the entire process is like strike one for me. It's, it's strike one. And that's a big deal. For me, that's a really big deal. I, it's a really big deal. I'm gonna, I'm gonna argue there's a difference between the story being her idea and the concept of making a play being an idea. Um, because this sounds to me like um, Sonia came in and said, let's make a play. And Joe was like, that sounds cool. And then she started thinking, okay, what could this play be about? What could we do with it? And then they started kind of putting ideas out there together, figuring them out. Okay, what's going to work as a play? What's going to work story-wise? And so I kind of see that as two different... 100% ideas. agree with you. 100% agree with you. So I don't see why it's a problem, though. Because... Because I feel like that's just, this is the medium this story is in versus the story itself. Um, sorry, can I just interject something there? Um, is it okay if we all start by defining what canon is to us? Because I think that would be helpful for me personally and for the listeners, maybe, just going ahead, like, what do we, how do we define canon? I mean, in order to discuss if this quote, these quotes sure. actually... Yeah, why don't you go first? Yeah. First. Okay. Um, so for me, I define. I don't have my own definition. I uh, have the definition from uh, the Merriam-Webster and the Oxford Dictionary, and it says that canon is uh, the works uh, of an author which are considered to be uh, genuine or authentic. Um, yeah. So that would be the one I'm using. That it has to be a work by J.K. Rowling. It cannot just be something that she said once or twice. Uh, and that it has to be authentic, which I'm, which I'm guessing is what we're uh, discussing right now, right? The authenticity or lack thereof. Yeah. Um, I guess I'll go. My idea of canon is more uh, flexible, like I said, kind of like my wand, but not very. Uh, when it comes to things like... Uh, Rowling has mentioned that there's a thousand students at Hogwarts and you do the math and that's not really possible. Um, <laughs> that's my, my canon tends to be a little more like, well, as long as it wasn't contradicted, sure. But I think the issue I ran into with Cursed Child, and it's so perfect that you kind of summarize that at the beginning, Hannah, about issues of, 
uh, subjectivity and bias because really what happened for me is that Cursed Child heavily affected how I interpret, how I personally interpret the epilogue of Deathly Hallows. And not just because there were things that were altered about the epilogue in Cursed Child, but a lot of the things afterwards, I think, contradict what I chose to take away from Deathly Hallows. And I'm not saying, and in that way, I'm also saying the epilogue is open to interpretation. Um, and therefore, probably a lot of people who like Cursed Child interpret the epilogue different than I do. Um, so, it, it, like, Cursed Child got onto a more, I guess, personal level for me of how I interpret Harry Potter and what it means to me. Um, so it kind of expanded my issues with how to interpret canon because really up to that point, it was mostly things like, well, as long as Rowling doesn't say a gross contradiction, then that's fine. Um, or something that's just way out of left field or something that, um, cause there's rarely things that I won't take as canon. Um, even the 800 word prequel, which has very little to no context whatsoever. I'm like, sure, fine. That can be canon. Why not? <laughs> It doesn't hurt anything, so sure. Um, my definition of canon isn't far from yours, but it's certainly more rigid. Um, I believe that there are three rules that define canon, and I have actually I actually wrote a whole article about this on MuggleNet. If you go to MuggleNet and search what is canon, I wrote part one, and um, so my my three rules are: Does the information take place in the individual's fictional universe? If it does. There's one. Is it generally accepted by the readers as being true? And the third is, does it alter anything J.K. Rowling has written in the past? That is a big one. If it meets all three of those guidelines, for me, it's canon. If it doesn't, it's not. Or it's extended, or it's alternate universe, or whatever. I like to look at the Wizarding World canon, and I think I've said this on this show before, as a box. So you have this big box, and in that box, there are little boxes. One of those little boxes is the seven novels. One of those little boxes is the eight films. One of those little boxes is Pottermore. And one of them is Joe's old site. Another is her Twitter. And Cursed Child, I know we're debating it now, and I want to be clear when I said before that it wasn't canon. It's not canon as it relates to the seven Harry Potter novels. I don't think I said that before. Um, Cursed Child has its own box in the Wizarding <laughs> World, larger canon. And so within itself and its own little story, great. All it, it, you know, it's its own little thing. If you try to relate it to anything else in the world, it breaks all of those rules for me and ergo not canon. So, See, that's funny because I think I kind of have a similar like visual image of it, but I see it as it does connect it just connects differently um my basic canon definition is anything written and sanctioned by jk rowling if she says this is the way it is that is the way it is and i'm okay with that <laughs> um but i i see these as the only other example i can think of that that like helps illustrate this is um if anyone's read like 
all of Rick Riordan's books, where he's got, okay, you've got the one story that is Percy Jackson and the Olympians. Those first five books, one story. Cool. Now we move on to what happened after that, which kind of forms its own little story, which is Heroes of Olympus. Cool. Then we have our other ones in, you've got, I mean, you've got his Magnus Chase, you've got Trials of Olympus, you've got these like little offshoots kind of things. Because maybe it's just the way I see stories. Stories are carved out little sections of something bigger. We tell stories because they are carved out sections of life. So these writers that expand their worlds, expand their ideas, take a larger world. So in this case, like J.K. Rowling's Wizarding World. And she started by carving out the story of Harry Potter from Harry Potter's perspective. And now we're getting a new kind of carved out story, which is Albus's story. Um, so I think that kind of helps with Michael's issues with the epilogue because the epilogue in Deathly Hallows comes from Harry's... I mean, there's other issues with it too, and I will concede those, but... That comes from Harry's point of view. That is the epilogue of Harry's story. But in a lot of ways, that is the beginning of Albus's story. And those are kind of two different things. So then we've also got this new story that's getting carved out of Fantastic Beasts. So if there's this big timeline of all of these things happening in this whole big world, we're just getting these little bits. Yeah, But they I'm all go together. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I would also add that for future generations of fans, I mean, obviously, uh, we grew up with the books and the books are like, um, you know, holy to us. But I think to other generations of fans, they are just coming now or just like discovering Harry Potter, then they might discover Fantastic Beasts first or even Cursed Child first, for example. So it's not like they're going to have that hierarchy with the books are the top and then the rest of the stories. So it's like you don't know exactly which entry point they might have in the Potterverse, I think. Okay, so thank you for bringing that up, uh, Anna. I, I I do think that that is very important to get out there, and hopefully that will help the listeners understand where we're coming from a bit as well. So I did have a couple other quotes here that I wanted to read before we moved on. <clears throat> the The next one here comes from a BBC interview, and it's with Jack, John, and Joe, all the J's there. And uh, again, it's from the same interview that I read from before. The interviewer's name is Will. And he says, you're all credited as writers, meaning you all, Jack, John, and Joe. So how did that actually work in practice? And John says, the three of us talked and discussed the story, which Jack then wrote down. And we didn't start writing the play as such, or Jack didn't, until we had agreed on what the story was. Jack. And then I tried to write a script. Joe, well, you did write a script. Jack produced an amazing script. To me, that says that, yes, um, J.K. Rowling was there and discussed the story with them. But Joe says right there, Jack produced an amazing script. So my question then to you is, to use another example of something like this, would you only say in a TV show the only episodes that can be considered canon are those that are written by the creator of the show. Ooh, that's so sticky. That's not really fair. No, I, no. Yeah, TV TV is a totally different universe because there's always teams of writers on television. Um, that's not always the case in theater. So 
No, uh, no, I'm still saying why should this be that much different? I mean, I know it's different, but why shouldn't it be that much different? A creator of a show is going to have an idea of what should be happening, what should be going on. This is how who these characters are. And if there is a team of writers, then they, they talk, right? They talk, they all kind of get on board the same thing. So I see, okay, if the three of them got together, talked, got on board, I'm sure they deferred more to Joe than anything else. I'm sure if someone brought up an idea and she was like, mm, no, that doesn't fit, then they threw it out immediately. I don't think... But that also comes along with... I what, don't think they would go That also her. comes along with the issue of what you just said, Allison, where the, with when you brought up the example of super supernatural and i was just thinking of uh the one that crushed my heart heroes where Mm. yeah Mm. those things happen but that doesn't mean they turn out well or to anybody's satisfaction or whether sometimes the vision doesn't even stay online um in the case of heroes the writer's strike occurred and everybody like who was kind of originally with the production bailed out and they brought in all these newbies and the show completely fell apart and the people who were the root of that idea left Um, and so it's, even if that's the case, that doesn't really necessarily guarantee canonosity in that way, because the original vision may change. And I think rolling in this particular case, I definitely get the sense from almost all the quotes that Kat pulled that rolling was involved in the story boarding process kind of the creation and the brainstorming and then she left and the only thing that she was there for after that was to be a reference if they wanted to ask her a technical question Mm -hmm. um and i think the thing to keep in mind is that rowling's view on that from when she started harry potter to now has changed drastically because of her involvement in the films and how close of a relationship she develops with steve cloves and how her view on the films became very lenient after a time um i think she was really stringent and uh strict on a lot of things at the beginning and she let up after a while because she relented to, to the fact that hey she wasn't the complete owner she was in incomplete ownership of this medium um and she had to give up a few things she had to let things change and she even explained that on her old website where she was just like yeah lacarnum inflammari is a way too long spell and that would never happen in my world but, but, you know, in the movies, it sounds better. Hmm. Um, yeah, but I, I would say that that's a bit different because she's not really calling the movies canon in any way. Um, so she's giving, you know, Steve Cloves some permission to change some stuff that would look better on the screen than they look in the book, obviously. But she's not really changing anything about her characters or her world. world. Oh, I beg to differ with that. Okay. I guess the thing that's that is similar to the movies, while... We have this issue of she considers Cursed Child canon versus not the movies. Um, and I definitely don't, would not consider the movies canon. They're their own thing. Um, which of course gets complicated with Fantastic Beasts and that's a whole other discussion of canon. But, um, the sim, the thing that's similar in both instances is she is handing the story over to somebody and putting it in another medium. And I think that's the part that's affecting it because either way, whether she considers it canon or not, she has relented that there are sacrifices that have to be made with her style of storytelling to bring that story into a different medium, I guess is what I was getting at. Um, and why Allison, I think that's what you brought up was interesting with the, idea about television um 
because also, yeah, if Harry Potter was brought, uh, was done as a television show, as much as people I think really want that, that would also necessitate changes. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think that's, that there's, there's definitely two sides to that argument as well with how much she's involved with a change to a medium. Yeah. I think, I think that brings up an interesting point too. I know, I know on some of the episodes we did before, especially I think the production episode, we talked about, there are some lines that just feel like they were made for a theater audience. Yes. So I guess, I guess I can see like those additions having to, yeah, those additions being made for that purpose right there's there's a certain there's there are certain things that have to happen in order to make it work as a stage production right but that are catering to a specific audience of people who will see that show for instance the fact that uh they're off sugar like i remember talking to claire who, mm-hmm. for those who don't know, is our marketing manager over in the UK. And she said the theater burst out laughing at that line, and she saw it with a bunch of kind of rich socialites. So, you know, things like that uh, I've always seen as f- catering to an audience specifically for the production aspect of things. So, Oh, yeah, there's definitely, like, that's an, and that's another issue that comes up, absolutely, is that uh, in this with this medium dare I say it even more so than the movies, because this is such a plays are the, the the thing about a play versus the movie. You can't get the play everywhere right away. It's in a limited area. Um, you've also eliminated a certain amount of people who can see it because the sheer cost of the play. And if you're outside of the country, getting to go to the play um, become an issue. So the play naturally will have to, cater to a certain audience that probably only knows Harry Potter casually doesn't only knows Harry Potter from the films or doesn't know Harry Potter very much at all and is actually going for the the theatrical aspect which happens um and in that sense like you guys were saying you have to come up with something in there that's going to appeal to what Harry Potter fans would probably refer to as the layman in our world uh somebody who just doesn't know the intricacies of the world and they're going to be too complicated to explain um so that definitely comes up i think we see some of that in the books though too um the thing that popped into my head was the fact that she put in goblet of fire hermione how to pronounce hermione's name because that's a, a downfall of the medium right you don't necessarily have someone telling you how some of these things should sound. So I think you kind of have to do that with all mediums. Um, There has to be a little bit of tweaking, but I think then, to me at least, that doesn't discount the story itself from being canon. Yeah, I think that's... Yeah, no, it does. I think that's actually dependent on how individually nitpicky each of us want to get. And what egregious things we we take from how 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 we react yeah it's funny because honest has said it so perfectly at the beginning that you how do you not be biased about it but how can we not be in this particular situation is the part that's really hard <laughs> anna you were you were about to say something too 
No, I was just going to say that even if we think about the books, I mean, she's been working with her editor, right? And we know that her editor asked her to remove some things or maybe add some mm-hmm. things. And I think that that's not, I mean, she has somebody else's input in the books as well. And maybe if she'd worked with another editor, we would have had some different books. Like maybe we'd, we would have had that, uh, you know, Weasley cousin or the woman that adopted Sirius um, as a dog <laughs> mm. and all that. So I think that this is like the author just works alone and it's just their vision. Like that's not really always that accurate, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Yeah, that's that's how you start, but you always get feedback from other people. Mm-hmm. Um, if you really want to make it something good, you always get some sort of reaction um, from someone else to find out, make sure you're hitting what you want to be doing. But also, I'd I'd say for me personally, in this in what we're discussing at this moment with the with the authoring of the play, there is a distinct difference from Rowling working with her editor to tweak things here and there that her editor says, "Oh, this isn't working for your story," oh, yeah, sure. or Rowling identifying parts of her story that are like, "Oh, I'm hitting a roadblock. How do I fix this?" Versus Rowling being there for a brainstorm and then completely going away. Um, yeah, definitely, of course. Yeah. I just don't think she completely went away. Well, I just don't think she's that, that kind back. of person. Yeah, there's nothing really in her quotes that's indicating to me that she stuck around a lot. Right. Well, I think she's very, I mean, she's very possessive about her world yeah. in those quotes. She's very like, well, this is just my world, you know, I'm not going to just let it go. Uh, so I think that she was definitely like 100% in agreement with everything that's in Cursed Child. And I think that's a bit funny because so many fans just blame Jack Torn <laughs> and John Tiffany for all the mistakes and plot holes and all that. But I mean, actually, J.K. Rowling approved. I mean, she has put yeah. her stamp of approval on everything. So it's like, why not blame her as well if we think it's poor quality or contradicting or bad characterization or anything like that because she was definitely involved i mean without her permission nothing would have happened nothing that's in there would have been in there Mm -hmm. so i actually it's funny that this is kind of where we're at now because i have one final quote here and it actually comes from pottermore so you know that 100 percent this has been approved by the wizarding world giant umbrella of things (laughs) uh i don't know who wrote it i believe it was the the correspondent and This is part of a much bigger article. I'm just going to read three little paragraphs from the article. They're out of context. If you want to read the whole thing, again, the link is in the description for the show. Head over there. It says, Jack went away and came back with the first 40 pages. The big thing had happened. He'd written dialogue for Joe's characters, and they sounded like themselves. He'd brought them back. I can't tell you what it was like to see that. It goes on. The Jack, to which J.K. Rowling had entrusted Harry, is writer Jack Thorne, who, as well as being a world-class wordsmith, is a huge Potter fan. Last paragraph. The three of them set the plot that day in J.K. Rowling's writing room. They strung together the narrative, then and there, in notebooks, and then Jack and John flew back to London to get started. So... The fa- the first line, and again, remember whose point of view is writing this. It's the Pottermore correspondent. They are being paid to be positive about the script. So remember that when you're reading that article. Regardless of what you think about it, it's important to remember the point of view you're reading from. The first part here, Jack went away and came back with the first 40 pages. How long is Cursed Child? A couple hundred well, pages? 40, 40 pages in a book, 40 pages as a... That's probably the entire first act. Uh, 
Yeah, it probably is. I think it could depend. So, he had that, I mean, he had no help in that. 40 pages printed is about half of Act Act 1, Part 1. But, I bet you anything she sat down with a fine-tooth comb, went through everything, said yes, no, try this differently... but we, but but she's never said that she did that. But I, she had to. You don't know that. Yeah, she didn't have to. She didn't have to. Yeah. I, I like we were talking about. She's so possessive of it. Yeah. I like am so sure. Yeah, it wouldn't be in character for any author, I think, to just be like, okay, we'll just leave the story completely up to someone else. I don't think that's really. Not when they're keeping her this involved. Yeah, I think this is her baby. And, you know. I don't think there's been anything in the press to indicate that it was. I think that it's... I think the other thing, too, to remember um, is that, as I mentioned before, look on the back of all your new Potter stuff and look at that little stamp. Oh, J.K. Rowling's Wizarding World. This has become... A corporation. This has become something that has a brand that you can, uh, you can put a little stamp on. And, uh, while Rowling is definitely, I think, more in control than any other author ever was of their property, uh, she is not in the same amount of control that she was in when she started this. Mm -hmm. And I know that her, her, her negotiations with Warner Brothers were, uh, uh, watershed. Uh, negotiations because she really did get more out of her deal with them than any other author did. <laughs> but she did have to make sacrifices. And I think the more that this has become, uh, corporatized, the, the, the more that she has lost little bits here and there where she can only say no so much before they go, okay, well, we heard you say no, but we're still going to do it. I, um, right. I.e. Fantastic Beasts, which is a yeah. really good example in this case. So, Joe said at the press conference in November that Warner Brothers, don't forget, as Michael said, corporation. Uh, Joe signed away a lot of the rights to a lot of her characters and not total rights. However, uh, what's it called? Um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, Michael, when she will? Mm. Either way, they they are allowed to use her characters Um pretty much in any way that they want. So Joe said in November at a press conference that Warner Brothers said, hey, we want to make, we're going to make a story about Newt's commander. We're, we're, we're thinking about some movies with Newt. And Joe said, oh, wait a minute. If you're going to do this, I want to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to write this. I'm going to write the screenplays. It's going to be me. And she did kind of have a gun held to her head because Warner Brothers said, if you don't do it, we'll do it. We're doing it no matter what, with or without you. And so I feel like she ended up writing it, which is fantastic because we all love Fantastic Beasts. She wrote it. It doesn't break any of my rules. It's canon. However, the whole like Newt expelled thing is like another story, but that's another episode. Um, So for me, the fact that they came to her and was like, we're going to write this play. And then she hired writers to do it. To me, like, backs said, up though. that fact that she had nothing. She That's didn't not what write it said, it. though. It didn't say they came and said, we're going to write this play. It says Sonia came and said, we'd like to do a play. Yeah. Not, we're going to do it with or without you, kind of. It was, what do you think of this, is what I'm getting from that quote. It's, what do you think of this? And Joe said, that sounds like a cool idea. Let's talk about what we can do. And as for her kind of 
not taking so much credit for herself, I feel like that's a very Joe thing to do. I feel like she did that with Steve Clovis a lot, too, where she is very good at graciously using her own spotlight to spotlight these other people that get involved, where everyone says, you're the creator, here's this, this, but when these other people are involved, she makes sure they are still seen by her side. But I think in this case, it may have almost gone too far, where now people are almost getting the wrong idea. But I still feel like she's so, so involved. Like, I see her fingerprints throughout this entire script. Yeah, and also to add to that, I think, you know, I take your points, Michael and Kat, definitely. But I also think that did somebody put a gun to her head and told her to call it canon? Because I think that that's a different issue. You know, it's one thing to license something and be like, okay, well, it's okay to make a play based on my books and make up a story or something like that, but I'm not going to call it canon or anything. It's just going to be your story and that would be fine. It would be like... You know, like, just like a play, like a fanfic or something like that. A very Potter musical. Yeah, exactly. That's not part of her official, but she's not, you know, suing Jack Torn or anything. She's just saying, okay, you can do what you want, but I'm not going to take that into consideration in the future when I try to make up stories about my characters or when I write Pottermore biographies or something like that. But by saying it's canon, uh, I think she's limiting herself. She can no longer make up things about her character that go against what's uh, in Cursed Child. And I think that's the problem. She can no longer say, well, you know, Albus Severus was a Hufflepuff or something like that without losing some credibility. And to me, that's an important issue. And that's why I think it's canon, because I think it limits the possible scenarios for these characters in the future. Because by calling it canon, she's saying, this is my version of what happened to these characters, and you're not going to get any other version. So, you know, you can take it or leave it, but it's not going to be any other story. That's a great point. Yeah, I, I, I don't disagree with that at all. I think that so, was a, something that was a little bit of a crushing thing for the fandom with this, because mm-hmm. up until that point, we've been getting some very enjoyable updates from Rowling about what's going on in the Potter universe um, via Twitter and via Pottermore. Um, I think probably one of the major highlights was the Quidditch World Cup that we had a few years ago, mm-hmm. and we caught up with Harry and his family for the first time, and... Uh, knowing that she's basically mapped this out now thanks to Cursed Child until, what is it, 20... 2022. 2022. So she can't really do much within that now um, because there's a fixed end point um, from pretty much this this September 1st until uh, 2022. Right. Aww. But that's okay because 2022 Fantastic Beasts will be over. <laughs> she can get back to thinking about that. Perfect timing. Well, and and two, uh, to to I guess to wrap up this part of it here cuz we've talked about the the ownership for a little while. Um and Allison, again, I don't want this to sound like I'm attacking you. I just you know, um <laughs> because you know how much I love you and respect your opinion. Yes. So, you're saying that you feel like she has to be involved in this and but every quote that i'm reading leads me to believe she hasn't and there has been no shortage of opportunities for her to say oh yeah i wrote that i helped write that i sat down and i said oh you know what no cedric shouldn't do this he should do that or alba shouldn't do this he should do that she's had ample opportunity to own up to that and she has been asked time and time and time and time and time and time and time again and she's never said that so okay i'm gonna take that i'm gonna say okay 
reasoning behind this. I don't claim to know her mind. But if I was in that situation, I would I would think I wouldn't want to nitpick out what I wrote and what I didn't, because then that takes it away from being a cohesive thing. And then you're going to get people that are going to say, oh, only the lines Joe wrote are well, it, everything yes. else throw it out. Yes. I mean, obviously. Instead of saying, yeah. instead of saying, okay, this whole thing as a whole is or isn't. Um, and, and I do think, especially she was, I mean, it seems pretty obvious she was there. She helped get at least the plotting and everything that was happening in place. Like, that seems pretty obvious. And yeah. I'm... Right, so I... I don't know. I still get the feeling from the quotes that she was very involved, but she's just not the type to talk about how involved she was. I, I definitely agree. Obviously, I don't want her to sit down and be like, I wrote this line and this line and this line and this line. However, as we talked about before, the editing process and how things change, we don't know what Joe and Jack and John storyboarded on that first day. The story mm-hmm. we ended up with could be a 180 from that story. Yeah, but I mean, that's very, I mean, that's the same with the books, right? I mean, her first draft of Deadly Hallows might not be the same as the story we right. got. However, so I don't feel like that's... Remember you know. when we first heard about Cursed Child and the story was that it's going to be about Harry Potter at his time at the Dursleys? Did we know that for we sure? We did. Though? It was I released was information from J.K. Rowling. It was an official press release. Was it? But the point is, does it matter? Because it's all very speculative. I mean, we can just, we sit here and just guess about, you know, maybe they changed the story or maybe she didn't have that much input or she had a lot of input. And I mean, we do have the final product. So I think that that's what we should be looking at. Mostly. No, I think, yeah, Anna's got a point that after a while, this debate, until we have more definitive information, which I think a lot of the information we're seeking in this discussion is not going to come to light anytime soon. Um, and I think there's a reason, like you said, Kat, why Rowling has been kind of non-responsive about this. Uh, the only other example that I can think of, and it doesn't quite, you know, it doesn't perfectly line up because it's, again, an issue of adaptation from book to film. Uh, but it's a, it's notable in kind of how it was carried out as uh, Philip Pullman and the, mm-hmm. the Golden Compass adaptation. Um, and uh, Pullman was kind of infamously very, uh, he, he very much talked up the adaptation and he was super cool with it and every time they announced a change he was like that's fine i understand there's changes that need to be made when that movie came out and bombed at the box office he suddenly did a complete 180 and was like yeah they made me say that stuff and i had to say things for appearances i was under a contract there were certain things i had to um express to make sure that people went to see the movie And now that that's happened and enough people didn't see it and we're not going to go forward with this, I don't have anything favorable to say about it. Um, he even said at one point that he was, he felt that, uh, cause uh, there's a character who is a major character who is, uh, her hair is black in the book and they changed it to blonde because she was played by Nicole Kidman. He was like, you know what? They were right. She should have been blonde. He actually said that during production. And then afterwards, he com- he just changed tack. Uh, the only other comparison I can make is the the guys who were behind Avatar: The Last Airbender and that whole debacle when M Night Shyamalan adapted it. And the whole time, they were fine with it. They had to be publicly, but as time has gone on, and that movie has been decried as one of the worst movies of all time, uh, they have uh, 
not so subtly expressed their uh, distaste in what happened. So I think the thing that's hard for us to see on our end is that there are legality issues um, on the other side. Um, you know, I think Rowling is, while she is definitely very expressive and has a lot of control more so than a lot of other creators when it comes to partnerships, um, I'm sure there's things that we don't know about um, that are going on behind the scenes that affect what she can and can't say. Amen, brother. <laughs> I don't know. Call her. Somebody call her. <laughs> okay, yeah. Rolling, your next interview. If you're being held captive, blink once. <laughs> That's all we need from you. <laughs> um, so our Twitter poll is almost up. We've got uh, nine minutes left here. But I figured if you guys saw, I put out some question. I put out a question earlier on Twitter because I wanted to see if anybody out there had opinions uh, that you know we should address. And we got this great question from I believe you pronounce the name Keaton. He's at Thespian Twenty One, and his question is: Has the fandom ever resisted JKR so much as they do with Cursed Child's role in canon, and why has this hit such a nerve? Ooh. And I feel like we've talked about that a little bit, but I wanted to I wanted to give him an answer. So what do you guys think? Fan huh? entitlement that comes with the internet. Um, Elaborate, please. Is going to be... <laughs> yes, I'm getting there. Um, I have seen this so much, especially lately, because it's so easy for fans to interact with creators, mm -hmm. to interact with each other, to interact with source material on the internet... Fans have become extremely entitled. And if it doesn't match up to what the fans want, which isn't necessarily always what the creator has in mind, what the creator is thinking, it's it's almost like you've taken the what we call in literary theory, the author is dead, and they've taken it so far that once it's out into the world, there are fans out there that think the author is dead Anything the author does from this point that contradicts what the fan wants is completely wrong. And because it's so easy to go after them on the internet about it, and because internet culture very much focuses on attack, 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 very um, strong, it's become a serious problem. So especially in the case of Harry Potter, it's such a large fandom it incorporates a lot of people in a lot of different places at a lot of different stages of fandom. And it had been 10 years of people imagining what happened after the epilogue. Some people came up with the right stuff. And then you get, the, of course, the problem of people saying, well, they just took it from fanfic. Some people came up with other things that a lot of people really enjoyed. But when it got contradicted, people got angry People had this in their mind for 10 plus years and there it became this huge problem because we knew there could have been a generation after Harry and we knew that from the epilogue. I think that's partly why we got so much backlash for Cursed Child and not a lot for Fantastic Beasts. I don't think anyone thought about Fantastic Beasts until, or Newt Scamander as a character, until it was announced they were making this movie. 
Yeah, and uh, also uh, to add to that, sorry, Alison, go on. No, no, you're fine. Okay. Yeah, I was just going to say that I think there was some resistance even before Kershaw, because I remember the canon debates go way, way back um, to basically after Deathly Hallows. Uh, and she was giving, you know, she was going on book tours and giving interviews and telling us things about the characters like Dumbledore's gay and this person was killed by this person and so on. And there were a lot of people, I remember online, that wanted her to basically shut up um, or write another book. Uh, so that wasn't like okay with the fans. And then I also remember, I think Mugglenet published an article saying that J.K. Rowling should stop releasing new information on Pottermore or on Twitter, on or giving interviews about the characters. So I think it's always like <sighs> controversial to add something to some to something that people already think is so perfect, and then they have the, their own headcanons, like you say, Alison. They they, yeah. they don't want to give that up, you know, especially not for something that's been written partly by someone else, uh, and that's the problem with Cursed Child, of course. Yeah. And I think there's nothing wrong with having headcanons. There's nothing wrong with trying to fill in information or thinking about these things you care about. But I think it, it's when people start rejecting too much the actual creator of something, then, at least personally for me, that's going too far in a lot of ways. That's So this is really interesting because that the, the point you brought up, Allison, because I actually feel like, you know, uh, fan entitlement, um, to me, fan entitlement was more, and this was an extreme case of it, fan entitlement is more um, petty and usually comes, at least the way I view it, and tends to come more uh, from the idea of things like, and this is an extreme example, but the, the fans who were like, Hermione can't be black. And it's like, oh. what? Mm. No. Um, that's wrong. But there was a, a sense of entitlement there. People were like, well, she's, and, and to the point that people were looking through the books to find examples, the one example where <laughs> Hermione is defined as white. Um, and, uh, to me, that's entitlement. That's a way of saying, well, I know better than you, JK Rowling. Which is what I see a lot of these people doing though. Sorry. Not well, to, but anyway. I guess what I'm, What's con what, what I don't agree with, I guess, with that is that I've been seeing such astonishingly thoughtful and constructive, uh, critically constructive arguments against um, Cursed Child. What was really impressive to me, actually, after Cursed Child came out, was that a lot of the arguments against it were, to me, on the level of what we do here on Alohomora. Uh I was seeing a lot, in the, and I was seeing it with our listeners, I was seeing it beyond that with all these articles that had been written that were thoroughly researched and uh, very well thought out and that people were saying, you know, this um, this isn't just about the little nitpicky things. This is about larger ideas within Cursed Child. This is about originality versus unoriginality in Cursed Child. This And, and this is in relation to uh, uh, rehashing, uh, re retelling, re you know, kind of they're, they're, the arguments that were put up against Cursed Child, I think by a majority of the fandom were very well thought out and very articulate as opposed to uh, are, and, and went to a deeper level than just, oh, well, I didn't like it because this, this and this um, deeper than the level that say, I think in the fandom arguments about the films tend to go to, which are more surface level arguments. Um, mm. it's, it's, it definitely feels to me that these arguments go to these characters 
are doing something different that doesn't really fit with how you, Rowling, told me these characters were behaving. Not how necessarily I interpreted them, but how you told me they were behaving. And what that's, lessons that's they learned. Gonna, you know, that's always going to be subjective. I mean, some people think, you know, Harry is being out of character, whereas other people think, no, actually, that's his character. Uh, mm-hmm. So I think there's not going to be any sort of consensus. But I think some contradictions in Cursed Child can be objective, like the, if there are plot holes or anything like that. I think that's something that can be objective. But then the question is, okay, what happens if Fantastic Beasts turned out to be full of contradictions or like messing up the chronology of the Dumbledore story or something like that? I mean, would we say, no, it's not canon then, even if J.K. Rowling was the sole author uh, of Fantastic Beasts? I mean, this is going back to, uh, I think, Kat's uh, definition of canon and the three criteria, like what happens if Fantastic Beasts turns out to be like... (sighs) very bad and contradict. I don't think that's going to be the case, but I'm saying that it's definitely possible that it will mess up some things. And I mean, it's already a problem with Newt having been expelled and then, no, he wasn't. And then, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's a whole other hurdle there. The fact that Fantastic Beasts is a film and how much does that relate to a novel? You know, there's there's already that kind of extra level of WTF. How do these relate to each other? (laughs) But yeah. No, I... uh, I... Agree with both Allison and Michael, actually, because I do think that a lot of the reason people had such difficulty accepting Cursed Child, not even as canon, just accepting it as a story written in the Harry Potter universe that is quote unquote sanctioned, quote unquote written by Joe, however you look at that, um, is part of that is definitely entitlement and part of it is they want their own headcanons and they're entitled to them. You can reject this and pretend it never exists, burn your book, don't buy it, don't see it, completely forget about it, like you're totally entitled to do that. However, you know, oh man, it's 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 difficult and you know, for me, why is it why has it hit such a nerve as Keaton asked? I can pretty much ignore Cursed Child. I'm not one of those people. I didn't really read fan fiction. I don't have a headcanon. Pretty much I accept what J.K. Rowling gives me as valid for her world. And for me, and again, I know it keeps coming back to this for me, but J.K. Rowling didn't give this to me. That's why it doesn't feel real or valid to me um maybe not valid is not the right word because there's obviously a place for it out there in the world but i guess for me that's why it hit a bit of a nerve is that it's a story about characters that i love written by somebody who doesn't know those characters and i guess that's where it hit a bit of a nerve for me um totally jumping back like a half an hour actually an hour uh our poll (laughs) is done on twitter And I wanted to give you guys the results. So I gave four options. We had 444 votes, which I feel like isn't too bad in an hour. That's pretty good. So 23% of 444 said that they love the script and that it is canon. 21% said that they love the script, but it is not canon. 15% say that they dislike the script, but it is canon. And 41%, not surprisingly, said they dislike the script and it is not canon. 
<laughs> so, I mean, that is obviously the largest group, but 36%, one third of the people were in that middle group who love it and say it's not canon or dislike it and say that it is. So mm-hmm. I feel like that's a, that's a fairly even spread. You know that the, that the quote dislike not canon group was going to be a bit bigger just because it's so controversial, but it was pretty even otherwise. I mean, I think the thing that also makes this a bit of a special case is what Allison mentioned before, that there ha- there were 10 years in between where everybody got to form mm. their opinions about what happened. And in a, in, 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 before that, we had years and years of fan fiction. And the common complaint within the fandom that's come against Cursed Child is that it feels like fan fiction. And as somebody who was steeped in fan fiction... Um, and I have the podcast to prove it. <laughs> I, I, um, I would say yes, it hits every fan fiction trope. And I think that was what was frustrating, I think, for a lot of Harry Potter fans. And a lot of people have said, well, what could she have, what could she or any of these writers have possibly done to make this not fan fiction after 10 years of speculation and more than 10 years of fan fiction that had come out by other yeah. people? But, to me, that's a discredit to fan fiction because there's a lot of good fan fiction out there that did incredibly mm-hmm. original things. Um, and there's better fan fiction than this play. <laughs> then in my personal opinion, I've read better fan fiction than this. Yeah. But that, I think some people think that there are, there's better fan fiction than Deadly Hallows, actually. Oh, yeah. yeah no. I've and that I think yeah, that was well, a so. worthwhile thing to bring up because when Keaton asked, why has this hit such a nerve and w- has the fandom ever resisted rolling? harder and the only time i can think that they have is specifically with the epilogue in hallows um not hallows as a whole the epilogue um really kind of had a lot of strong opinions around it um and i think that would naturally happen with the end of any story but yeah i think it i think that that added element of so much speculation years of fan fiction, years of tropes that were built within the Harry Potter fandom kind of wrapped themselves into a nice little bundle with Cursed Child. Plus, and the other thing, too, that Allison had mentioned earlier about how Rowling doesn't cater to, you know, the the fandom's wants and that fandom entitlement, there is a lot of fan service in Cursed Child. Um... Okay, I'll give you and that. Even, you know, and that's, There's a little bit. It's something, pretty, Michael, small wins. I love you, Al. Yeah, well, no, I don't, <laughs> I, well, I don't consider this, you know, a win or lose. I'm, I know. But, uh, but uh, it's, it's a, it is an issue, I think, that was brought up a lot. was like, oh, Snape comes back so we can have him be, you know, completely, we can completely apologize. Oh, Scorpius is a whoopee. Oh, Albus and Scorpius were besties and they're both in Slytherin. And, you know, it's, it. There's these are things that were developed by the fandom as kind of they wanted that and they got it um, a lot in full um, the way that it ended up being written. So, uh, yeah, I think I think that's the only way I could answer Keaton's question is it's it's kind of it's it's kind of a unique case in that respect. Yeah, and I think it's also a unique case because it's written 
together with somebody else or by somebody else or how, however you want to put it. And we're not really used to that in the uh, Potter uh, verse. Oh, yeah. Um, Absolutely. And I think that that's not actually that unusual because other writers have also collaborated with other writers. So, for example, I don't know if you know this, but Neil Gaiman uh, wrote a book with Terry Pratchett, for example. Uh, so it's not, mm-hmm. you know, and George R. R. Martin has also collaborated with some of his more hardcore fans, I think, to write some sort of history of A Song of Ice and Fire. So it's not really that unusual, but it's unusual to us, I think. It's like Tolkien's son taking his notes and writing the stuff he did after. Tolkien was dead. It would, and, and I think... That's the difference. Well, yes. But the author is dead. But it was his notes. It was his ideas. So it would it would almost be like... The only other thing I can think of that would create such waves as this does would be, like, if someone found C.S. Lewis's notes and wrote, like, what happened to Susan after the last battle. <laughs> like, the definitive version, you know? Like, or what about that Watchmen I think you, book? It would... uh, I'm, the name is escaping me now. Oh, Ghost at yeah. a Watchmen? Oh, Ooh, and that is so complicated um, in its own right because she was alive when she approved it, but she had no idea what she was doing. Yeah. So <laughs> that's so hard. Yeah, th- I think that's the other thing that we're getting down to by listing all of these multiple examples is that uh, there's not really a comparable example that we have uh, in not. a fandom this large. Uh, I think people tend to go to Star Wars, but even that's not really comparable. But what do you think about Game of Thrones, for example? I mean, you know, the books are written by George Martin by himself, of course. But I think if you think about the TV show, uh, he's been collaborating with some other people and the TV show is way ahead of the books or has different versions of events from the books. For example, like it can be pretty big differences uh, between the books and the TV show. So... I think that that would be sort of comparable. Like, I mean, he's allowing somebody else into his creation. True. However, uh, that's so an adaptation. Being... And so that is coming from source material. So I feel like for me, that's different because right now, Cursed Child is, quote, the source material. It's not an adaptation of other material. Yeah, I agree with that. But yeah, but I know, but the, show, the TV show is just so ahead of the books. And I think that that's why it's a bit of its, of its own being so to speak so it's different from harry potter where we have the books and then we have the movies adaptations but in game of thrones we have the show is like ahead of the novels and the novels will probably say the same thing that we saw in the show but we don't really know well there's there you could almost say that there's a similar issue in harry potter with the books versus the novels where joe is so good at setting up um things crazy early and they took some of those things out of the movies because they didn't know they would need them. Right. Creature, or for example. Even, I think sometimes if, yeah, I, even if sometimes I feel like, I feel like I've heard of something where Joe was like, mm, you might want to keep creature. that in. But they're like, was mm, we're not going to keep yeah. it in. Okay. Um, so th- there's things like that where even, um, th- that's another tricky example of, okay, I forgot where I was going with that point. <laughs> It's it's okay. So let's let's switch gears a little bit because we haven't actually touched on the text at all uh, within Cursed Child. And again, guys, remember that this is opinion and we aren't analyzing the actual material. We aren't saying if we like it, if we dislike it. This isn't about our the likability factor of Cursed Child. So please keep that in mind. And before we jump into that, I 
again, wanted to bring up this thing on Twitter because our Twitter was blowing up today. People were all over <laughs> it. And uh, for everybody who was arguing with me on Twitter, hello, that was me you were talking to, for the record. And um, so this tweet came from, I believe you say it, uh, Katie Haley, maybe? Katie Haley. And she puts forth a very interesting theory, which if this were to come out as true, I would feel more okay with it. I'm just saying. So her theory is, uh, this is not verbatim, but that Theodore Knott created an alternative timeline when he tested the time turner. Ergo, the characters in Cursed Child are not the ones we know from the novels. Hence the dialogue changes and the odd actions. And I think that that's <laughs> pretty brilliant, quite honestly. Because well, here we go. Another example yep. of a need to fill a gap to explain it away. It's amazing how far the fans of Harry Potter are going to not to to canonize making this not canon. <laughs> yes, right. I know. And we, I don't know how Katie feels about it. Um, you know, I didn't I didn't uh, see that her opinion of that on Twitter or not. But I thought that that theory was so wonderful um, that I had to bring it up on the show. Yeah, I think it, I it's, think it's, it's funny. I don't. Yeah, it. it's very interesting, but I don't see it actually working out because, I mean, most people who watch Curse Child or read Curse Child are not going to be part of the online fandom, so they're not going to have, probably don't even know who the other not is, maybe. Uh, so it's a completely different level of uh, information, I would say, and I think some some people have tried to make connections between. Curse Child and Ilver Morney or something like that and it's also like what? that's not going to mean anything to casual readers or viewers and that's the problem when you're in the fandom you, you kind of tend to be in a sort of bubble uh, where you think everybody's just as informed but they're actually not unfortunately yeah yeah it's well and it's uh, actually I can I can answer your question Kat about uh, Katie uh, she tweeted at me I can't even pick out tiny details. They rewrote the epilogue. The end. So no, she doesn't. <laughs> okay, good to know. <laughs> she doesn't like it. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's, that's a, that's a fun, that's a, that, that goes in the bank for me of fun theories. Yeah, I like that uh, one a lot. I like it a lot. Yeah. It's funny because it does basically say, you know, that minor line at the beginning. Yeah. That negates this whole thing. Right. <laughs> which is, is, is that is pretty funny but uh speaking of uh rewriting 19 years later do we want to kind of look yeah. at that a little bit yep because that is that as i mentioned before that is something that really um kind of gets to me in this and i did I, I listeners i did i did try and read through uh, as much of cursed child as i could today um i didn't stop it, it i should clarify i didn't stop because i didn't like it i stopped because i was at work um and uh, i could only read uh through act one part one but uh i did uh, i did immediately think wouldn't it be interesting to see how many things and what things were changed between the 19 years later epilogue in deathly hallows versus cursed child and kind of reflect on why they matter and i found about I listed about uh, 14 or 12 changes. There's probably around 20, um, I'd estimate, because there were a few I didn't write down because they were so minor. Um, most of them are things like lines being switched around um, from Ginny to Harry. Uh, there's one instance where uh, a line switches completely from who's saying, who's talking from 
uh, Ginny and James to Hermione and Rose, interestingly. Um, and just little things like that here and there. Sometimes a little bit about the order of when the lines were said. Probably the biggest thing that's changed as far as minor details is Ron and Lily's dialogue about stealing her nose. Um, completely new. Pretty much, I assume, there to give Ron something to do in the <laughs> plot. Um, but the major changes um, occur. One of them is actually from Deathly Hallows on page, let's see, 755. The narration notes that uh, Ron jokingly says, if you're not in Gryffindor, we'll disinherit you, but no pressure. And Hermione goes, Ron! And the narration notes, Lily and Hugo laughed, but Albus and Rose looked solemn. It was interesting to me because that little line kind of, to me, indicates that Rose actually shares the same concerns as Albus about her her place in Hogwarts. And while she definitely speaks of having... Uh, grandiose amounts of confidence um, in Cursed Child. She doesn't really have anything to say about it until she gets on the train. Um, and in Deathly Hallows, she doesn't say anything at all. Um, not until, actually, uh, page 49, when she's talking about... Uh, actually, and that's in... the Page 49 is way farther off, and kind of about there after they've been at Hogwarts for a while. Uh, another major thing, Malfoy, the Malfoys, Fleur and Teddy, are all cut from the epilogue in Cursed Child. Fascinatingly, I thought it was weird that they cut the Malfoys because they're so involved with the story. And the yeah. things they say about the Malfoys in Deathly Hallows are kind of perfectly in line with what happens in Cursed Child. Did anybody have any thoughts about why they might have done that? I... And... I'll admit, this bothered me in the theater. It, it bothers me that... But I think it's it's part of a bigger problem. It's part of the problem of they rush too much through these first three, three years mm-hmm. to get you to their fourth year, because that's when things happen. Um, and, and seeing it in the theater and even reading it, it is so fast. Like, this all just goes, 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 mm-hmm. goes. So it doesn't give you time to slow down, reflect on some of these things. And I, quite honestly, one thing I wish they would change is I wish they would take a little bit more time with this. Um, because it, it, it does bother me. Um, but I, I don't know, maybe because they wanted to introduce Scorpius as his own person, because that helps, it helps make it a little bit more plausible for the audience to have the plot point of there's this mystery of if he's really Draco's son. Um, it, it, and, it, and it introduces you to Scorpius not, I mean, not as Draco's son, not as Draco's mini-me, you know, which I think we get in some ways in the epilogue, but as his own person. That's why I thought it would have been interesting to keep it, because Albus would have more... No, I agree. I suppose it would have been like Albus would have been more outrightly defying his father by befriending Scorpius, which, granted, that's not the reason he does it. But Albus seems to be frequently motivated by defying his father <laughs> in the in the play. And the only thing that's said about Scorpius is in Deathly Hallows is that Ron says, Ron seems to have a lot of lines in the epilogue in Deathly Hallows considering how little he says in Cursed <laughs> Child. Um, 
He says, So that's little Scorpius, said Ron under his breath. Make sure you beat him in every test, Rosie. Thank God you inherited your mother's brains. Ron, for heaven's sake, said Hermione, half stern, half amused. Don't try to turn them against each other before they've even started school. Oh, you're right, sorry, said Ron, but unable to help himself, he added, Don't get too friendly with him, though, Rosie. Granddad Weasley would never forgive you if you married a pureblood. So I do like the accent. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> but uh, that's what's going. That that was interesting to me, just because I feel like there's a dynamic already set up there that somewhat carries through the play already. So it seems almost like a needless elimination. Uh, I think some of it could have been. <laughs> Ron doesn't show up. Much <laughs> 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 so you don't want to be calling so much attention to him in the first scene. <laughs> when he's when other people are going to be more no important. that's true because well, um, he even establishes i think in in the in his version in cursed child that he's kind of just there to be ron like he really doesn't yes. contribute much to the point that at the end of the play he literally says i don't know why i'm here <laughs> like <laughs> <laughs> and and i love ron in cursed child i love him i love paul, paul thornley I, I think he's great Oh yeah, <laughs> and like I said, it's one of those things where it's, what are you carving to get this story out of like the bigger timeline, mm. you know? And I think Ron is one of those things that gets carved, carved down a little bit. What were you gonna say, Anna? Um, no, I was just wondering how. I mean, are we saying that it's not like Cursed Child is not canon, or they create some issues because the epilogue is different in this version? Is that what we're getting at? That's partly what I'm getting at. I'm going to dive into it a little more here, actually, with some other quotes, because there's some, like, that's, that's, that's an issue that, uh, that's, you know, I'm, I'm always interested to hear, actually, how the people who embrace Cursed Child as canon view it. Um, I think Allison touched on it a little bit, actually, when she said that the epilogue, in a way, in Deathly Hallows is from Harry's perspective. Um, yeah. But, which is for me is a little challenging because Rowling's narration is it's third person omniscient like somewhere between third person mm. omniscient third person limited it gets more limited i think as they go on i think in the first one she was trying to hit third yeah, person she's omniscient, way more omniscient in the first but place. by deathly hallows i feel like she had settled on this is third person limited which is hard because then that possibly like does that open it up to is Harry perceiving things differently than other people? Um, because that is kind of the excuse you have to make for these alterations, I would assume. I'm going to say yes. Because there, again, <laughs> there's flat out lines and individuals who are being changed, um, yeah. here. Yeah. That part, that's the part that I have more problem with. There being different perspectives on how things are said or how things are going. That, to me, I'm fine with, because if the epilogue is from Harry's point of view, everything's sunshiny and happy. He has his family, he's sending his children off to Hogwarts, everything's great. Um, The beginning of Cursed Child is Albus going into Hogwarts, where he's heard so much about it, this is new and scary. It's Harry getting on the train again, which, for the first time, which... He has very different feelings <laughs> between those things. But wait a minute. You can't say that Harry is brilliant and wonderful and super happy in the epilogue of Deathly Hallows and still think that Cursed Child is canon. Why? Because Harry at the beginning of Cursed Child is a miserable hot mess. 
Like, well, you could be they, both. They, they completely contradict each other in every way. Not necessarily. Well, Not I think that okay. So let's. That could be. He could be happy in the moment of the epilogue, oh. and have other emotions as he goes throughout his life. He's a three D person. I mean, do we know what he's thinking? Because it's just a play, so we only have the lines. How do we know if he's happy or not? So okay, let's go into a bit more with these lines versus these verses lines because I think they might get into that a little more. Um, before we get more into kind of exploring Harry, there is one line that I thought was interesting. It's a throwaway line, I think, generally, but when you consider it versus Cursed Child, it becomes a little more interesting because um, uh, when uh, they start talking about Teddy, who is eliminated from Cursed Child, <laughs> um, James says, Yeah, said James enthusiastically. I don't mind sharing with Al. Teddy could have my room. And Harry says, No, said Harry firmly. You and Al will share a room only when I want the household demolished. Um, and it's interesting because there seems to be an implication there, and I think it is open for interpretation, but to me the implication is that Al- Albus and and James have a moderately close relationship and are maybe not Fred and George level close, because they definitely, James antagonizes Albus to some degree, but they, Harry seems to know that they are a destructive force of nature when paired up together. Um, mm, that may not necessarily be just because they're buddy-buddy. That could be a destructive force in nature because they get after each other so much that it could turn Possible. Definitely possible. Absolutely. I think, though, that it's open to interpretation. For me, it causes a problem because James and Albus essentially have no relationship in Cursed Child. Um, Albus really doesn't have a relationship with his siblings at all, other than kind of staring at them from afar and being like, stupid siblings who are living up to my father's expectations without doing anything on purpose. It's, but it's definitely open to interpretation. There's, there's more added to that if you go through the Quidditch World Cup extras as well. But of course, that's hard too, because that's all told from the perspective of Rita. Um, at least when it comes to Harry's family, because Ginny doesn't comment on that. Um, there is, there is to some, and it's another pitfall of how fast they go through this. Mm-hmm. You, you don't see how those relationships could have changed in the three years that yeah. they go through in like 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I got the feeling that a lot of things changed. Because Albus was feeling like a black sheep, he kind of withdrew, and nobody really recognized he was withdrawing, and so they, like, kind of let it be. Yeah, I think that's why... I think that Rose is meant to be the representation of that in the play, because Mm -hmm. she seems to be... She seems to kind of... At least the dialogue in the play in in the book kind of suggests that she's very much a Hermione type and that she feels that she can command Albus or at least tell him what to do. And she seems surprised that he's not listening to her. Um, and then he cuts off contact with her. So I don't know if that was meant to be a microcosm of what's happening with his family as a whole. Uh, it's, but like you said, Allison, it's hard to say cause the play doesn't really convey that since it moves so fast to get them to fourth year, mm-hmm. um, that it ends up skipping a lot of that. But then you get into stuff, a few uh, more major things with Harry. Um, an interesting, another one that's kind of a throwaway line in, in 
in Hallows is that after James taunts uh, Albus about the Thestrals, uh, Harry says, Thestrals are nothing to worry about, Harry told Albus. They're gentle things. There's nothing scary about them. Anyway, you won't be going up to the school in the carriages. You'll be going in the boats. And we'll touch on that line in a little bit, but I wanted to I wanted to put that one out there because I think it's actually a little important in comparison. And then the one that I'm actually going to go ahead and read both for is the the discussion about sorting. And in the book, it goes, uh, "What if I'm in Slytherin?" The whisper was for his father alone, and Harry knew that. The moment that only the moment of departure could have forced Albus to reveal how great and sincere that fear was. Harry crouched down so that Albus's face was slightly above his own. Alone of Harry's three children, Albus had inherited Lily's eyes. Albus Severus, Harry said quietly so that nobody but Ginny could hear, and she was tactful enough to pretend to be waving to Rose, who was now on the train. You are named for two headmasters of Hogwarts. One of them was a Slytherin, and he was probably the bravest man I ever knew. But just say, then Slytherin House will have gained an excellent student, won't it? It doesn't matter to us, Al, but if it matters to you, you'll be able to choose Gryffindor over Slytherin. The Sorting Hat takes your choice into account. Really? It did for me, said Harry. He had never told any of his children that before, and he saw the wonder in Albus's face when he said it. Okay, now... Compare that, keeping all of that in mind, hold it, hold it in your head, hold it tight, and then we get Chris Child's version, which goes, Dad, Albus pulls on Harry's robes, Harry looks down, do you think, what if I am, what if I'm put in Slytherin, and what would be wrong with that? Slytherin is the house of the snake, of dark magic. It's not a house of brave wizards, Albus Severus. You were named after two headmasters of Hogwarts. One of them was a Slytherin, and he was probably the bravest man I ever knew. But just say, if it matters to you, you, the Sorting Hat, will take your feelings into account. Really? It did for me. Hogwarts will be the making of you, Albus. I promise you, there is nothing to be frightened of there. And that's how that goes in Cursed Child. Thoughts? Huh. It irritates me. And not only because the lines are changed, but because it sets up a different story. It sets up a different tone because both of the dialogues give you the idea that Albus wants nothing more than to be in Gryffindor. He wants to be like his parents and... Whether or not he's doing that for the right reasons matters very little because it's what he wants and what he desires. But then he gets to Hogwarts and Craig, can you remind me is we don't see an inner dialogue on his sorting, right? No, he just gets sorted. No. Right. Okay. So we don't hear him actually say anything like not Slytherin, not Slytherin, not Slytherin. And I feel like that's the that's the thing that bothers me the most about it, is that he just accepts it. And you don't get to hear that inner dialogue of why that's so important. And a change like that feels like a big one because of that. 
I think yeah, that, but I think it's it's hard in place to just convey people's thoughts. I think that's it's a pitfall. Uh, that's a media. problem. Well, of course it is. Yeah, exactly. They just have lines. They you cannot see what's going on. I mean, it's harder to see what's going on inside their heads than it would be if Girl's Child were a novel. No, I, I don't disagree with that at all. But there's also stage directions for things like that too. Sure. I was gonna say I f- I feel like part of that is that. I think that goes back for me to what Allison said that the play goes too fast in this part. It does. Because I think you could convey it successfully on a stage if you had more time. Um, the way they try to do it from the, from what I gather is they try to reflect Albus's insecurities with himself in his classmates who feed them to him. Mm-hmm. Um, in kind of rapid succession. Uh, but again, I think it is just hard for us to digest because it does go so fast and we're used to getting to know these Harry Potter characters over the span of one year, not four. Um, so that's, I think that's a big part of it. There's, there's just gaps here in that development of Albus's self-loathing almost that he starts to have. Um, and his kind of war between loathing himself and loathing his father. Uh, it's there. It definitely comes up later down the road. But yeah, I feel there is definitely something lacking on that. And I agree with you, Kat. For me personally, that's that's the big, one of the most egregious things for me about the play. Is it it purposefully changes those lines to get a different story. Right. Um, and... Go ahead, Allison. Yeah, it, 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 I was going to say, it, it does bother me. It still bothers me. But again, I think it's one of those things of because they sped through so fast, if they had gone slower, I think they could have stayed with the original epilogue as it was. They slowly could have built these changing thoughts, these changing ideas, these changing relationships. And then we could have gotten to the point... Um, that we get to when they start their fourth year. But because they don't take the time with that, all of that gets cut. Mm. And so they're trying to like shoehorn it a little bit. It's a medium thing. So it doesn't bother. It doesn't, doesn't necessarily impact the overall story for me, I guess. So I still take it as canon, but I feel like those ideas got shoehorned to fit it being a theater and having a theater audience and if it was stretched out, we would have seen a more organic change to get to that point. And also, I mean, I, yeah. I don't know if we've ever touched on this, but why is it fourth year? Mm, you know, I, I don't know. I, I gather that it was purely because of the magical knowledge that they want Scorpius and Albus yeah. to have. They, want the, they wanted them to be more equipped. Sure. Okay. That makes sense. That's but the, also that they're young enough that they can be slightly clueless about things. Well, and, and I guess... It's also a, a parallel to Goblet of Fire, yeah. which, which was the fourth yeah. year yeah. in Harry's life. Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely supposed to be something about kind of equating Albus and Harry's age with the, uh, with the events. Um, yeah, but also I think talking about all of this, that the relationship should have been explored more and stuff like that. I agree with that. And I also think that other stuff in the play, I would have liked more of an explanation for them. And maybe we will get to that. But some cases, like, I mean, some things like maybe Delphi's background or stuff like that's that. My I would have one. wanted, yeah, I would have wanted something more than just, oh, I was born at Belfoy Manor, blah, 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 something like that. So just like more of an explanation of the backstory and how the other prophecy works and who heard it and all that, I think. And I think that... But again, it's it's a pitfall of the medium. 
-hmm. If we had gotten a book or several books, I think we could we would have gotten all these answers for this great story. And this is one of the reasons why I feel like this is where I see Joe. I see Joe's complicated plot lines and ideas and themes and people changing mm. and coming in, but but things had to get cut or taken out or um, shafted a little bit to fit the media. See, and for me, it's the opposite because I don't see Joe in these plot lines because they're not mysteries to me. I think they're overcomplicated, hot messes that have no sort of intricate details in any way, shape, or form. It's like a Scooby-Doo episode and comparing it to uh, Agatha Christie. See, I feel like that's somewhat the case. It's hard for me to say because I think that these clues, the clues that are there to resolve the mystery, for me, I gather might work better on stage than they do in script form. Because um, mm-hmm. I saw them right away. They a lot of things work better on stage than they do in the script. A mm-hmm. lot of yeah. things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I thought, and I thought that would be the case with Cursed Child, and I thought that maybe. I, I think though that, and that gets you know, you guys, Anna mentioned Delphi, and I think she becomes a big complication with how people feel about the play because of who her parentage, Ugh. and that. That that brings up a major issue because I think a lot of people felt, and we, you know, uh, this gets hard because we've the fandom has tried to explain away how Voldemort and Bellatrix conceived a child and how Bellatrix hid her pregnancy um, during Deathly Hallows because she was pregnant during Deathly Hallows during a time that we saw her. Well, um, can I just say something? She wasn't actually pregnant. I mean, it's possible to make it so that she's not pregnant when we actually see her or that she's very, like, early in her pregnancy and not very visible, I think. So I don't think that creates a plot problem for me, at least, because it does work, I mean, mathematically and if you follow the, the timeline in Deadly Hallows. So I don't, I mean, I've seen those things online as well and I don't really agree with people who say that, you know, she was pregnant at Malfoy Manor because I think that by Malfoy Manor she had already given birth probably one month or two months ago or just that the people who are whose point of view were seeing that part of the story from it didn't matter to or they didn't know or you know like yeah i I think there was especially if we're thinking okay robes i think the way joe pictured them do not look the way they look in the movies of course not definitely not no course it could be very easy to hide And, okay, I'll give you a sliver here and the fact that Deathly Hallows, Harry Potter, is a 17-year-old boy. That is the sliver, the tiniest sliver that I will give you. But you know what? He would notice if she was carrying 40 pounds of extra weight and had a giant protruding belly. Of course, but I think we see her in... uh I mean, if you follow the timeline, we see her in July. I mean, she's at the meeting with Voldemort, and then she's flying in the Seven Potters, where Harry doesn't actually see her. And then we see her She's not in the Seven Potters, is she? Yeah, she is. And then we see her in Malfoy Manor, which is, like, in the middle of March. So I think it's possible if she was, like, three months pregnant already in the Seven Potters, then nobody would actually see that. And then she would have already given birth by a Malfoy Manor chapter. Uh, so I don't really see a problem with her pregnancy from that point of view. Yeah, that, that's good. 
<laughs> it's hard because it's, it's not definitively said when she when she would have been pregnant and when she would have had Delphi. Mm-hmm. So it's no, it doesn't say. It's ambiguous. That's part of, that's part of that's problematic, yeah. I think, in that respect. Because the other thing is that the Malfoys are unaware of it, um, and that's well, not also likely. we don't. I mean, I don't know if they're unaware of it, but they don't really. I mean, Draco doesn't identify Delphi as being the baby born at Malfoy Manor. Uh, so I think that it's possible that he doesn't know about her identity, but not necessarily that he doesn't know that she exists at all. Uh, because or maybe think, they lied to him. Maybe they told yeah. him that baby the baby died or something. I mean, so definitely. he has no idea she's still alive and around. See, and these are the things that oh, they, these are the things that can only be developed by you know uh, suspicion on the on the fandom's part by theorizing. There's mm-hmm. as far as the play leaves it. And I think the play leaves it a plot hole because it's easy for the casual viewer to leave that as a plot hole. Mm-hmm. Um, we as Harry Definitely. Potter fans question it, but the casual theater goer is not going to ask it. Yeah, I mean, I love Bellatrix, so I'm trying to figure out everything. Yeah, yeah, no, <laughs> about for sure. Her pregnancy and the timeline and everything, because yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like people want to know, and of course, then that contradicts you know some things we've we've known about Voldemort previously. I believe Rowling said that. As far as Voldemort, she she did say on Twitter when somebody asked her if Voldemort had had uh, sexual relations, she she responded by saying, Does, "Doesn't the Dark Lord even uh, even the Dark Lord doesn't he deserve his privacy?" Um, yeah, exactly. So she was ambiguous about what was going on as far as that goes. I think a lot of people were suspect that Voldemort could even sire a child. Because of his, the state of his being, um, which gets into a whole nother debate in itself. But I think, and then Allison, I think you came up with a theory that a lot of the fandom wanted to accept, which was that she's not actually their child. Yeah. I 1000 wholeheartedly totally accept that. If I were ever to accept this atrocity as being canon, <laughs> that is what I would accept. Like there's no effing way Voldemort is the father of that, of that girl. Yeah, like, no, I, no I definitely way. think it, it wasn't like, let's make a baby, I love you, Bellatrix. Oh. It was oh. definitely, there was something else happening, you know? Like, I, I mean, I've come up with, I've discussed a couple, the one that it's Rodolphus's child, and he lied to her, that somehow she was magically created, um, that she was some sort of punishment, or punishment disguised as a, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Reward? Uh, reward, thank you. <laughs> wow. Um, some sort of punishment disguised as a reward for Bellatrix. Um, that Bellatrix could have done something to try and tie herself closer to Voldemort. I, I think there are a lot of really plausible other ways. But can I just say that I think that, I mean, going by the theory that it's she's actually Rodolfo's uh, daughter, I think that doesn't make as much impact for me thematically because I think this is the story of the next generation and it makes sense that Delphi and Albus and to some extent Scorpius as well they are dealing with their legacies and to me for her to be Rodolphus that doesn't really mean anything and I think it doesn't mean anything to the larger audience as well who are like who's Rodolphus because he wasn't even in the movies but I think Voldemort I think it means a lot well Voldemort is just like a more important figure I think so thematically it just works better and then it doesn't I mean the timeline Rodolphus was in jail uh during uh Half-Blood Prince so I mean that was a whole year where he's that's true 
not there. And then we also have the deal with the augury, like she's the augury, she's, you know, has a lot of power over the ministry in the alternative universe where Voldemort has won. Um, it just makes sense to me that she would be his daughter, but then I don't think it was like, I don't think it was his intention to conceive her. I think she just happened to get born. Well, we well, could talk about that all day, but no matter what, there's that, uh, oh, that yeah. they did well, not and, have sex. Well, and in the, <laughs> at, we can theorize all we want, but then it goes back to, I think, closely to what Anna was just saying, which is that at the end of the day, it's, f- it's for a dramatic thematic purpose. And mm-hmm. exactly. there's nothing in the play to contradict it. Um, mm-hmm. no, there's, there isn't. Rowling has not clarified it further. And so if you want to, it, 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 this kind of depends on how you're, you define, this goes back to how you define canon. If you want to forgive some things, then are you going to forgive others by just making up your own canon? Or are you going to go with everything that's said in the play? Are you going to take it all? You're going to leave it all. You're going to just kind of be flexible and make up your own things in between. Um, because Delphi brings up another issue that actually ties back around to Harry, which is the dream stuff, which I still can't figure out because I went back and examined Harry's dreams prior to Voldemort coming back to a physical form. Because a lot of people have argued, well, Harry has really important dreams prior to Goblet of Fire. But if you examine Harry's dreams they're actually more reflective of things he already knows rather than being prophetic mm-hmm. um, and being literal in the sense that his dreams uh, uh, regarding Albus are. Um, by Goblet of Fire, once Voldemort comes back, his dreams become almost literal. They, uh, to the point where they have, he's literally seeing what Voldemort sees, but his dreams in the middle tend to, he's, he usually starts off his dreams as normal dreams. Somewhere in the middle, they mix with Voldemort. And at the end, they're Voldemort's visions. Um, so, and Delph, the dreams that he's having related to Delphi and Albus are prophetic because they tell him where to go. Um, and as I've said in the Cursed Child episodes, the dreams almost purely function to be, he went that way, <laughs> dreams. Um, so, but there's no Horcrux connection between Harry and Delphi. And if there was, that's not how that should work anyway. Um, so what's, so there's, there seems to be a failing of canon in that respect. I don't know if there's any other ways that you feel the text supports that explanation. Yeah, I feel like maybe it's just the, the fact that Delphi has Voldemort's blood. Uh, so that's why Harry suddenly has this, I mean, pain in his cars or something like that. And he starts being able to speak parcel tongue again for some mysterious reason, which we never, which is never explained. But I think that's how I explain it in my head anyway. He feels the connection because she's half Voldemort in some way. So it's, you know, that's my theory anyway. Anybody else have a reasoning for that? Because I, I, to me, it just doesn't work because Horcruxes, as far as we know, don't work that way. Yeah, uh, my reasoning is uh, hashtag not canon. <laughs> I, I, I think it. I think I'm thinking a similar thing that Anna's thinking. Um, it, it has something to do with, and it also could. Uh, what am I saying? Um, I think it has something to do with. I get the feeling from the play that Delphi is trying to revive some of the old dark magic that Voldemort used. And I think that could um, 
it's plausible, I think, in Rowling's world that that could trigger off some stuff that causes Harry to have these kinds of visions or this connection to her. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that, I think that's what the play implies without actually saying. Because they never actually say it, do they? Um, no. So. But it, it's something that I think maybe came across more visually mm. than... Mm. Yeah, I think there's just been so many... And this is another one of those things that I think comes up when we're talking casual viewer versus uh, uber Harry Potter fans. Mm-hmm. Will it bother the casual viewer? No, because they saw the movies and they know Harry has dreams and their visions and that sometimes that happens and he had a connection to Voldemort's head. Does it bother the fan? Yes, because it doesn't work with everything that we've established about Horcruxes and, and Harry's blood and how Delphi would be connected to him, if at all. The only excuse I can give it a pass for is that is that through Harry Potter, there's been kind of, and through Harry specifically, there's been suggestions that Voldemort and Harry were involved in such unexplored dark magic that nobody really knew what would happen. But yeah. that's kind of the only excuse I can give it, um, unfortunately. And the other thing I wanted to bring up with Harry is that I, you know, I read the line about that was cut about Thestrals. And I kind of feel like I was reading through the scene where Harry goes to see Amos, um, or, and or rather Amos comes to see Harry and, uh, how Amos antagonizes Harry and Harry just doesn't respond. And kind of Harry's grieving process in Cursed Child versus his grieving process through all of the Harry Potter novels. I know, Allison, you kind of felt like this character arc makes sense for Harry. Mm-hmm. I, I just think it's a time thing. Uh, a time and a maturation thing that he's... I mean, it's been 20-plus years. He has lived a little bit more. He's lived a little bit differently. Um, I think he's had time, and... I mean... There's a big difference between one year of processing and 20 years of processing. Um, So it it makes sense to me. I have no problem with that. Anna, how do you feel about Harry's kind of arc, his journey through Cursed Child compared to the first seven books? Um, Well, um, I'm not sure. I think a lot of people have complained about how he's being towards um, Albus and how he is as a father, that he's being very insensitive. And that that is somehow out of character for him. Um, <laughs> but I think that it makes sense. I mean, he's a father of a teenage son, so that's one thing. But also the fact that Harry has never been very good with feelings, uh, in my opinion, anyway. So I feel like that's very in character for him to say the wrong things when he's upset. I mean, you know how he's like trashing Dumbledore's office uh, after Sirius dies. So he definitely has a temper and can say stuff like, oh, I'm glad you're not my son or something like that. I'm sorry you're my son. Uh, which some many people see as being out of character for him and almost unacceptable. Um, so I don't really have a problem with his characterization, I think. It's funny because I kind of feel like this Harry does go back on things that he's learned in Hall, and not in just Hallows, but in the whole, in the series as a whole and that. But to be fair, I actually think that Harry is really trying very hard as a parent and that, uh, He's just facing the common issues that you would face with a teenager. And 
I'm not really surprised by the things Harry says because Harry's attempts to reach out actually seem pretty reasonable. He actually seems to be fairly in character to me. Um, he's almost just coming up against a character, a version of Albus that I didn't really expect to see, I guess, from, and I didn't really gather was coming from the epilogue. Uh, and that, as we said before, just, it didn't feel like he was satisfactorily built that way in the first scenes because of the way they're rushed through. Harry feels canon to me in Cursed Child for the most part. It's the people around him that don't. Yeah, I think the worst is definitely Ron, I would say, if I had to pick one of them. Oh, I feel like Ron's in character. Really? I think he's more like comic yeah. relief and just not really saying anything or contributing anything at all. Well, it's not his problem, most of it. I think we talked about this <laughs> in the episodes. It, it's, and that's very Ron. If it's not his problem, he's not going to get too involved. Oh, like, I don't think that's true. <laughs> Look at all the help he gave to Harry. That wasn't his problem throughout seven books. But I think I think that help... It, that's it his, was best his, friend's it was his best friend's kid. He'd be there. I know, but his... But, like... He's got his own family and stuff now. So does Hermione. Like, I, well, it's the same family. Like, but Hermione is always more, more, has always been more inclined to like try and take, not try and take control of a situation, but try and take control of a situation. Whereas Ron has always been a little bit more, I'll be there when I like need to be there. But then there's the fact that Ron's not there when most of this big stuff goes down. And so he's kind of, in the periphery of the whole situation. But when it does, I mean, he takes that stand and he's like, not my kids haven't been around here for much, but if they're doing it, I'm doing it. Like that brings up a larger issue for me that I think would be kind of a good one to kind of, cause we're, we're coming up on two and a half hours. <laughs> <laughs> we, we gotta wrap it up. Um, but, uh, an issue that kind of, I thought about too, as I was reading, do you guys feel that, because I realized, and this is naturally something, I understand this, There's, this is naturally consequence of a play, you have to take out a lot of characters. The Harry Potter world is full of characters, of supporting characters, really rich supporting characters, who in a way don't feel like supporting characters. But do you guys feel that the elimination of a lot of these characters affected how this, these events went down? Because... I was thinking about it and I thought, you know, the Weasley family is large, what we see here, but it's even larger. And, you know, the, the, I, the Weasley family has always been portrayed as a family that rallies around each other. And it's kind of weird not to really even have them mentioned. Yeah. Um, and, and I feel like they would have been more involved in this. I feel like a lot of other characters that we know would have been involved in this. Yeah, there's no way that Hugo, finding out whatever's happening with his family and his cousins and all of that stuff, wouldn't have been around more. And what about Fred and George, for F's sake? Like, Well, I'm, George. Sorry. Well, sorry, Fred is George. Well, you know what I'm saying. Anyway, um, like, where, where was he? And I understand, again, I, okay. that they have lives and all that stuff, but if Ron works with him... He knows what's up. He knows what's going on. And where is he? I I think 
some of it is the media of the plague, yes. I don't see them being eliminated necessarily. It's, it's again, it's what gets carved out. But going from the books, the Weasleys, as much as they'll rally together, they also kind of let each other live their own lives. Like, when they're together, sure, like, in physical proximity, they'll be like, whatever, you know. But, like, I don't know. I, I, I don't see... Ron or Fred or George or Percy or anyone feeling like they need to know everything that's going on in Bill's life or Charlie's life when they're at school. So I, I see them as being close and like I'm sure they were all keeping up on the, the basics of what's going on but even just like thinking Ooh. about my own family since all of my siblings are married and they've all moved off. I mean we all keep in contact but it's not like we all know every single detail of all of our lives. And even if something big happens, it's not, I mean, at, at, there's a certain point where we'd all like come back together, but until it gets to that point, if whoever is, whoever thing it is, is handling it. Ooh, 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 you can't see me, but my hand's in the air. <laughs> yes, Kat. <laughs> Make your um, point. <laughs> Percy is the head of magical transportation. Mm -hmm. uh, he works at the ministry. The time turner mm -hmm. is a form of transportation. Mm -hmm. Well, Percy would have put. Don't tell don't me that it it's not because department. it transports them everywhere through time. Though that's well, a whole different thing than magical. He magical transportation, I think, is more of be like involved. carpets, it's brooms, Percy. the train. And I feel Percy like would have been involved because at some would. point, if that, if we're looking at that, because. There's a team that goes out to examine the whole Hogwarts Express line when Scorpius and Albus disappear. Boom. So, so he probably was involved, but that doesn't mean he needs to show up. Oh, yes, he does. Well, he and Hermione I've, I've, have always been kind of tight in that weird kind of scholarly the way. The plague tries to enlarge this scope to the point that when Albus and Scorpius disappear, Harry contacts the uh, Harry and Hermione contact the Muggle prime minister to get them back and they held these huge meetings uh that are open to the public to to find out what's going on so this isn't a small issue so everyone's off doing something to help <laughs> i mean i don't see why why okay if we're talking about percy then why okay when this is happening they're having this meeting they're trying to figure stuff out percy's off in one section looking for them george is off in another place looking for them um you know, but you can't just assume that. Well, you can't assume they are either. There's it goes both ways. What were you right. going to say, Anna? Um, I think I agree that some of the absences are a bit strange. Maybe there's no Neville, there's no Luna. They could have probably contributed with some insights. Um, but I also think that if we're talking about canon, that doesn't necessarily affect it for me. Like that doesn't make it less canon in any way. I think I think there would have been a risk for it to have been even more. I don't know, convoluted <laughs> if they introduced more characters because they're hardly handling the characters they do have. Um, so, yeah. See, I think it makes it l even less so canon for me, and it was 0% canon for me because if J.K. Rowling was writing it, we would get those <laughs> character moments. We would get a mention of Percy going out to look at the train, or we, could, we would get a moment of Red, or Red, of... Uh, Ron, look at Sian did that, of Ron Red talking Ron. to his brother about what was happening in the family. And that, for me, is the biggest difference and why it's really disappointing that those things are cut out because it screams 
that J.K. Rowling's not involved. Yeah, but even if Rowling had written it, I think if she was writing a play, then she would have to cut some things out unless you want to make it a seven-hour play and it's already very, very long. Um, And I think, I mean, it's probably comparable to Fantastic Beasts. I mean, how many things are probably missed there? Also because it's a script, you can really have everything in it unfortunately. Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, even in her books, like you said, Anna, there are scenes that we know she intended that were, were not necessarily contradictory or plot problems. They were just making the books too long in some instances. Um, like her whole plan to expand on Dean Thomas as a character and she didn't do it because there wasn't room for it. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, I guess I was just thinking that because in my, you know, and I've expressed this already before, but uh, really I envis—I assumed and envisioned that Cursed Child was just going to be something very different. I thought it was going to be more of a, a character examination than it ended up being this grandiose kind of time-turning plot. And with the time-turner, you end up getting a bunch of characters that for me felt super superfluous and would have, if they had not been in the plot, would have allowed for room for these other characters to be around and present and affect the story. Um, which I think again, it might possibly be that, that, that might go potentially back to Keaton's question about why people were so, um, opposed to Cursed Child and had problems with it is because there is an obsession with a lot of characters that I think people weren't really interested in at that point. Um, I think a lot of people point especially to Scorpius's jaunt to the alternate timeline um, with Umbridge and Snape and alternate Hermione. Mm. Um, but I guess that's kind of the issue too, is that they're, 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 I feel like a lot of the characters and the story itself maybe would have gone in different directions and could have potentially gone in different directions um, that felt more, felt more canon to me than the choices that were made. I'd be all over a character study. That's what I wanted and what I was hoping for as well is something that explored the relationship of Albus and Harry in not this, like I said before, Scooby-Doo type caper. Um, Mm. I, I just, I don't need that. I want character depth. I want character moments and it just really fell flat. Yeah, I, I agree. So I, I agree with some of the points. I mean, I think definitely could have been much better than it was. I mean, the quality is not the best, to say the least. But I think I separate that from the issues of canon to me. I can say something is very bad and shallow and whatever and still think it's canon. So I think that that's why, you know, I understand all the complaints and agree with them, but they don't really affect what I think is canon or not because I'm just going by the definition. That's an amazing ability, Anna. I got to give you that. See, that's something that personally I'm very fearful of because I, I use Star Wars in that respect as an example, because I feel like with how angry the fandom got with the Star Wars prequels, but they take them as canon, but they don't like them in general. And it's, Mm -hmm. I guess that may be where part of my fear and maybe where part of the fandom fear comes from, because I know what can happen when a fandom lets those things happen, I guess, is what, you know, they, they, they say, they kind of throw up their arms and say, well, it is what it is. We have to take it as such. Um, but that gets into a whole other thing about ownership of stories and kind of how, what we were talking a little bit before at the top of the show about legalities, um, 
and where those rights will eventually transfer to. Um, but what were you going to say, Allison? I was going to say, I think it's funny that you guys don't see this as a character study because I completely do. I, I definitely see it as it's Albus dealing with a legacy and it's Harry dealing with passing on a legacy. And I definitely see, especially thematically, that is what's happening here is a character study of how did all of this really affect Harry and how does it affect his children? I kind of see it as a failed character study, mostly because of the reasons that you pointed out, Allison, that it goes too fast at the beginning. Um, there's a, if it's, it's missing a major part of the development for me personally, um, that would make it that way because we kind of just go from Harry and Albus are fine to, Harry and Albus hate each other because of stereotypical reasons. Like, there, I guess that's... And yet again, I think another reason that people just, as we said before, weren't really into it is that this... The story itself isn't really surprising. The themes, at least, aren't very surprising. And I think we're used to surprising things in Harry Potter. Rowling spoiled us a lot. Um, I think we've discussed that a lot on the show, that Harry Potter had something different about it. A lot of things that were different about it. And I think some of the fandom feels that this isn't different, I guess, for some of them. Well, there were things in the books that were pretty, I think. I mean, we, we knew about the Snape love, love Lily, for example. That was a theory <laughs> way before Deadly Hallows actually revealed it to be true. And I think also Harry as a Horcrux. I think that was also a popular theory. And R.A.B. being Regulus, Arcturus Black and all that. So, I mean... You know, not everything goes unpredictable, and I think there are stuff, uh, things that are unpredictable in Curse Child, but maybe not necessarily in a good way, um, like I hear you saying. <laughs> yeah, no, I think, yeah, that's close to what I'm saying. It gets deeper down into writing style and kind of choices on Rowling's part, but that gets into issues that go, I think, beyond canon. And I think we've, I think the thing that I've, I've gathered from this discussion is that while everybody's kind of trying to kind of find this, seek out this, you know, like this, this blanket definition for canon, it ends up being so individual um, mm-hmm. that it's not really possible, at least in the case of Harry Potter. How do you no, ladies feel I, I about mean, it? That, that's true about everything. I mean... Oh, you can agree to disagree. You know, I, I have a friend. It's, it's, it's funny. There's, we were having a conversation about a topic and we agreed on everything, but our point of view. And like, if we had, if somebody asked us a question about that and they said, what do you think about this? She would say one thing. I'd say the opposite, but we agree about everything else. So (laughs) it's, one of those weird things where, again, it's all about where you come from and your experiences and what you believe to be the ultimate truth and how you perceive that in the world, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think some of the disagreements are about um, quality versus authorship and what should matter most because I think we all agree that the quality could have been better. Uh, especially if you only read the script and don't see the play. Uh, but I don't think we all agree on whether or not it matters for um, whether or not it's canon. 
um, because I don't really bring quality in that much into my definition. So as far as I'm concerned, it could have like a hundred contradictions with the seven books and it still wouldn't make it not canon for me because it's all in uh, the authorship and it's all in her licensing it and also calling it canon, which, like I said, makes it uh, sort of limiting on what she can create uh, relating to the Potterverse from now on, because she will have to respect Girl's Child if she ever wants to create something else uh, or write something else about Harry or Hermione or anybody basically on Pottermore. Allison? Yeah, that's pretty much it. <laughs> I think it's. I think. It, I think it's. It's a very. It's an individual thing of what everybody's going to accept as canon and what they're not. But I think what's not okay is people dismissing other people's interpretations. Agreed. Um, and I, I think also, too, you can't ignore it, even if you don't think it's canon. Yes, you can. Sorry. <laughs> you can. I, I don't think you can. I don't think you can. Especially if, um, like Anna said, it's something that J.K. Rowling has said is canon. She has put her stamp of approval on. I think maybe in people's personal interpretations they can ignore it. But I think when you're talking about the whole... Um, you're talking about the wizarding world, you're talking about Harry Potter, you're talking about this world she's created, you can't ignore it. Because it's a part of it, whether people like it or not, <laughs> in a lot of ways. Um, whether that's as canon or as something else, it's a part of it. Yeah, well, I think that'll that'll be interesting to see as we, as we pass September 1st of 2017. And will we be seeing Rowling tweeting, Albus and Scorpius have gone back in time today. Is that going to be a thing? Well, she's already tweeted that they're going to school, but I think it was on the wrong date or something. Or yeah, she said oh, it she was either. last year when it was... It's not. Yeah, yes. exactly. Wasn't she tweeting about the other kids? She wasn't... She tweeted about yeah, James' she tw- Yeah, she tweeted about James going and she, to school. No, she also uh, tweeted about Albus. She said, Albus is going back to Hogwarts today. And everybody was like, uh, nope, that's next year. And she was like, <laughs> whoopsie, I'm in a cursed child headspace, got it wrong. We all know she's bad at math. It's okay. well there we go we'll have to see how she approaches that i guess within the coming years and that'll be a whole new challenge i think that and in addition to stirring in the next fantastic beasts movies into that and as anna mentioned and seeing what they'll do to dumbledore's story and to potentially harry's story uh we'll have to see how that pans out i guess the only thing we can do from here is throw it to the listeners um when you guys go to alohamora.mugglenet.com this week, have at it. <laughs> go crazy. We <laughs> can't wait to, to hear. Remember to be respectful, please. Yes, yes, please. We do. We do. You guys usually are very excellent with your discussion in on the main site, but we know it can get very passionate about this kind of stuff. Um, so just remember that you're sharing your opinion. Um, not so, not so much trying to beat your opinion into somebody else's head. <laughs> um, be gentle. Um, but we know you will be. And uh, just as our excellent guest Anna was this week. Anna, we want to thank you so much for being on the show. We, mm-hmm. we were, Kat was very determined to make sure this was a balanced panel. And I think, uh, choosing you was an excellent choice. You have, you proved, you, pro- you proved yourself worthy for this 
a very challenging panel. Thank you so much for having me. It was great fun. Good. And thank you for staying up till like literally six in the morning. <laughs> no problem. It was worth it. Did you go to sleep and then wake up again or? Uh, no, I didn't go to sleep at all. Oh my gosh. So, Do you have to yeah. work <laughs> or go to school or whatever? Uh, there's no way I'm going to the office tomorrow. So yeah, I'll be working from home. Quote unquote. Oh, okay, cool. All right. So you get to sleep. <laughs> a bit. All right. All right. Cool. <laughs> sure. Thank you. Anna, I mean, it's you. You were brilliant. You were the perfect representation for the Go Canon side. Yes, <laughs> thank you. And our next topic, well, who knows if it'll be quite as controversial? <laughs> it very well could be. <laughs> our next topic is going to be education, aka that thing that didn't happen yeah. when Harry was yeah. at Hogwarts. <laughs> I think we're pretty much all on the same page on that one. <laughs> And if you listeners would actually like to be a part of the education discussion or future discussions that are going on on Alohomora, there's a way to do that. To be on the show, all you have to do is go to alohomora.mugglenet.com. We have a tab that says be on the show. Click it and you'll be able to find out more about that. You can actually select from a drop down menu the specific topics that are coming up so you can specify which topic you want to be in. That's going to give you a much better shot to be on the show if you specify what you want to talk about. We also have a separate tab on the main site, the top submit page where you can suggest topics you would like us to talk about uh we can come up with topics all day long i think we could come up with a thousand more topics just about cursed child alone um (laughs) but uh head over to the main site to figure out how to be on the show if you have a set of headphones and a microphone you're all set we'll get you all set up with getting your recording program loaded up and ready to go Uh, no fancy equipment needed and in the meantime, if you want to, you know, yell at us because you think our opinions suck, you can do that over on Twitter at MN, Or because they're great. Over on <laughs> Facebook.com slash Open the Dumbledore. The website, of course, is alohamora.mugglenet.com. And we are sad to report that Audio Boom no longer accepts the audio feature. So you can no longer send us a recording. So mm. send it to our email instead. You know, record yourself <laughs> saying something, and we want to hear it. We want to play it on the show. We want to include more of your stuff. So our email is alohamorapodcast at gmail.com. Send us your thoughts, your comments, your questions, any of the upcoming topics. If you don't want to be a guest host because you're too shy or quiet or you live with 12 people who will never be quiet, <laughs> send us your questions in email. We want you to be involved in the discussions, and we want to hear from you. So please do that. Or tweet at us, you know. We like we like Twitter. As you saw on this episode. And uh, one more <laughs> yes. reminder to check out our Patreon. Once again, we want to thank Paul Gamilla, our friend Sliven Puffdor, for helping us support this episode and supporting us for over a year now. Uh, and uh, what's this little bonus discussion here that we've yeah, got? Yeah, we didn't really get to touch on probably one of the most controversial <laughs> things in the Harry Potter cursed child is a canon the trolley witch so we're going to take a few minutes and discuss her but you have to be a sponsor over on Patreon to listen so definitely head over there check that out become a sponsor tell them how Michael at patreon.com slash alohomora where you can sponsor us for as low as one dollar a month uh, but I think we've done our best to hashtag break the curse. Uh, I don't know if it's still, I don't know if that curse is still holding tight or not. You, the listeners, will have to tell us. But for now, 
We're heading out of here. I'm Michael Harley. I'm Kat Miller. And I'm Allison Sigurd. Thank you for listening to episode 215 of Alokamora. Open the Delphi door.